The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the MJ Cast 30th anniversary celebration roundtable. My name is Jamin Bull. I'll be your host today, and I'm here with a great collection of participants that I'll introduce shortly. I'm very, very excited for this show. Of course, Michael Jackson's 30th anniversary celebration was a 2001 short series of concerts and a televised special honoring Michael Jackson. Staged at Madison Square Garden in New York City on September 7th and 10th, the concerts were arranged as a collaborative effort between Michael Jackson and his childhood friend, David Guest. In late November 2001, the TV special aired. It was an edit of both shows plus documentary style interludes, and it was shown around the world breaking ratings records. 30 million people tuned in to watch on CBS in the US alone. The shows were in honor of Michael's 30th year as a solo entertainer, as his first single, Got to Be There, was recorded in 1971. The shows sold out in two hours, and ticket prices were famously very, very high. The best seats cost $10,000 and included dinner with Michael and guests. The shows were choreographed by Glenn Douglas Packard, who got nominated for an Emmy. Other personnel included MJ alumni Greg Fillengains, Brad Buxer, Michael Bodica, Jonathan Moffat, Bashiri Johnson, Michael Bearden, Michael Prince, David Williams, Alex Al, Sam Harris, and... Of course, those names will be familiar probably to listeners because a lot of them came back together for Michael Jackson's This Is It tour, which obviously was was famously cancelled due to to Michael's death. Following a run of tribute performances by celebrities and friends of Michael, the Jackson 5 reunited for the first time in nearly 20 years, and then a solo set by the King of Pop himself. Now, guys, this is the concert that made me a fan. If it wasn't for 30th anniversary, I wouldn't have become a fan in the first place, and this podcast definitely wouldn't exist. And that doesn't mean the show wasn't without its issues, and uh, we're going to dig into that whole thing now. Now, we've got some uh, really great guests on this show, and I'm, and I'm very happy to be here with everybody. This show has been in the, in the works for a long time, and uh, I've been thinking about doing it for nearly, you know, since the MJ cast started, actually. So I'm excited to be here with our guests. We've got award-winning journalist, Charlie Thompson. We have a first-time guest, Vinay Lewis O'Neill, who interestingly saw both shows, uh, September 7th and 10th. She is the king of pop fanatics East Coast chapter leader, 2021 Best Michael Jackson collection winner. We also have Sean Shackelford, friend of the show, huge fan, saw the Triumph Victory and Bad Tours live, also the executive director of Student Services and Diversity in Port Huron, Michigan Area School District. And lastly, we have Charlie Carter on the show, first time guest. He's also a team member at the MJ cast and does all of our editing. We're very excited for Charlie to be here. 
Anyway, without further ado, let's introduce ourselves personally. We'll go through that list in order. So, Charlie, welcome back to the show. Would you be able to tell listeners about just just quickly your your experience watching 30th anniversary for the first time? How did you see it? I actually didn't see it until sometime after it had happened because uh, it took a while for the show to actually appear on British television. I was 13 when it happened, so there was, of course, no chance of me flying out to New York to attend. So my experience of that show in real time was all through media reporting. Right. And so how many years later did did you see it? I would guess it was maybe a year after it had uh, happened, something like that. Right. So you were still quite young at the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was a teenager at the time that it happened and still a teenager by the time I saw it. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your um, your reaction to it when you first saw it shortly. Okay, great. And Vernay Lewis O'Neill. Vernay, we're so excited to have you here. Please tell us about your experience seeing the 30th anniversary shows. Sure, sure. I actually worked for the King of Pop Fanatics um, East Coast chapter, which I still do now. And we had a raffle to raffle off a front row ticket. I did not win that front row ticket, but I did purchase a ticket for the second night. And a couple days later, the person who won the front row ticket had a family emergency and knew they weren't going to make it. So the team decided to give the front row ticket to the chapter leader they thought worked the hardest and they unanimously picked me. So on night one, I got to be in the front row. And on night two, I was on the side of the stage. Wow, that's cool. So two very different uh, perspectives on the on the yes, production. Yes, indeed, indeed. That that is awesome. Okay, I can't wait to get into your thoughts on the show as well. And then Sean, Sean, how did you hear about and watch the 30th anniversary special? Um, I was uh, obviously as a big fan. Was following in a couple chat rooms and saw that it was obviously you know going to be aired, and I was excited about it. In fact, I'd heard about the shows and wanted to purchase tickets. But I was uh, about a six year teacher. And so it wasn't a good idea at the time, uh, and I was in a new district, so it wasn't a good idea at the time to extend my weekend and take off a, a Thursday, Friday, or a, a Monday, Tuesday. So I had, I had really considered going, but I just didn't think it would be a good idea. So uh, as with anything with Jackson in the title, I made sure that I did not plan anything that evening. Um, all my friends knew when Michael or Janet or anybody was on TV, don't call me. Uh, and of course they did. Uh, they called and they wanted to, you know, ask me about, and I would just turn my phone off and, and just stay glued to the TV. Uh, and so I was excited. I think I, I, I think I did record it on a VHS and it's somewhere uh, in storage somewhere. Yeah. Oh, what a great story. That's awesome. And and I'm particularly interested in your thoughts as well, because you, of course, um, having been on the MJ cast before, we've talked at length about your appreciation for Michael during the Jackson 5 and Jackson's eras. And then to see the brothers back on stage after 20 years performing together again, that must have been really something for you to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so Charlie Carter, I have been waiting nearly all year to introduce you to the MJ Cast audience. We were going to do this for our Christmas special at the end of the year because you you know you've been editing all of the episodes this season. Surprise, listeners, they're all uh, Charlie Carter productions. You've done such a great job. Uh, you've been an incredible team member that came on board, I think just under a year ago. Um, and we're so lucky to have you with us. And and thank you for joining us on this episode and making your debut with the MJ cast. 
Well, first things first, Jamie, and that's a hell of a build-up, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been an honour and a privilege to be part of the MJCast team. I first listened to you guys probably three or four years ago uh, and messaged saying, look, I think you're doing a great job, and then to eventually become part of the team is just, like I say, an honour and a privilege, so thank you for having me. That's okay. And I think some congratulations are in order as well uh, because you um, and your your lovely wife have just recently had a beautiful baby daughter, Josie. So congratulations, Charlie, on that. Thank you so much. And that's honestly one of the best things that's ever happened to me or us, I should say, us. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're mysteriously ducking off during this episode to take care of feeding and all different things like that, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll fix that up in the edit. Well, hopefully the magic of editing will uh, make that not apparent, but <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right, guys. So here we all are. This this show has had one roller coaster of a <laughs> history uh, coming together, not unlike the uh, 30th anniversary concerts themselves. But we are here ready to talk about them. I think what we might do is just open things up with a bit of context for the show. Now, I guess unlike other concerts that we may talk about during, you know, Michael's 70s and 80s heyday, you know, this one was pretty problematic, you know. I mean, in hindsight, I mean, I remember watching it myself and and I didn't actually I'll try and paint a picture for me and it would have been very different for you guys, but I was, you know, 15 years old or something at the time. I was in grade or 10th grade. Um I'd heard about this concert coming up on TV and uh I'd started listening to Michael's music in advance cuz I was really into like, you know, I think um I don't know whether the Olympic Games had just happened, the Sydney Olympics like kind of a year before. So I was really into these like big productions and world event kind of things. So I was excited for this and I didn't have much of an experience with Michael. So I was listening to his music in advance. And I remember the night came for the for the concert. It was televised and I sat down on my living room floor. My family were on the lounge chairs all around me. And my parents had grown up with Michael Jackson's music. Um, so they were kind of curious what this next chapter of Michael was going to be like, you know, because he was quite a bit older at this point. And it came on and I remember just really being mesmerized throughout the whole thing. And I remember, you know, all of the video interludes throughout it just totally soaking up all this footage that I'd never seen before of like crowd footage and smooth criminal and all these different things. And then finally we get to the Jackson 5 set, totally into that. I was just blown away by like how, you know, tight these guys are as performers really after so long. And then, you know, I also remember really loving the solo set, especially Billie Jean and obviously the dance break, which I'd never seen anything like that before. Totally mesmerized, drew me in and made me an instant sort of fan, obsessed fan, just within a matter of minutes. I do remember kind of thinking about it, though, at the time, asking myself questions like, why is this guy sort of covering his mouth so much with his hand when he's singing? And and something didn't seem quite right. And I remember the schoolyard talk the next day. Everyone had watched it. It was the thing everyone had seen. And there were people saying things like, oh, man, that, you know, like he, he looked really odd or something was off with, with him, you know, but it was still really great. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that context a little bit more shortly, but it did its job. It made me a lifelong mega fan and um, exposed me to the world of Michael and the Jacksons. I think we might kick things off actually with – with um, Sean, because like I said earlier, Sean, you you are somebody who really was a fan for a long time, and you got to see Michael Jackson with his brothers, which is a really big deal. So, talk to us about how did you first react when you saw this concert? The one thing is, I think there's there's 
three reactions that I have, uh, especially as I look back on it. Uh, it's, you know, how I would have reacted if I were there, um, how I actually reacted when I watched it on TV, and now when I look back on it. Um, so how when I what I remember about when I watched it is when the Jacksons came on, you know, I lost my mind. All right. As I said before, you know, they were my superheroes. And so to see them come out together and, and, and go right into, can you feel it? Um, and they, you know, you know, I have a, a thing for Randy. Randy is my guy. <laughs> and just to see him up there. And again, that energy between Michael and his brothers, in particular, Randy, it was just phenomenal. I was jumping up out of my seat. I was loving it. And when they went over to the to the to the great where the, when the wind and, and Marlon's holding up the the fire, uh, it's just that to me, I was I was losing my mind. I could only imagine if I were there, I would have lost my voice screaming um, <laughs> as it were. I, I almost lost my voice at home, I had a little dog at the time and I was scaring him. Uh, so uh, it was just to see him with his brothers. That whole set was phenomenal. Now, I could have done without uh, sync during dancing machine but <laughs> yeah. but 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 what the brothers together was just phenomenal i cannot express how good they looked and how great they sounded especially jermaine and i don't know if those vocals were recorded ahead of time but it's just they were just great and to see the choreography that they were doing uh for certain numbers uh so it was just a great experience now when it got to michael's set you know, I was a little like you. Uh, he kept putting his hand over his mouth. Um, you could tell that there were some pre-recorded tracks. And there were times, even during the Jackson set, that you could tell that his voice wasn't as strong. And so, you know, at the time, I, I you know, I kind of glossed over that. But as I go back and look at it and watch it, I actually watched it this morning again, uh, it really stood out that, you know, he was struggling a bit there. But I think, you know, but the, the power of him being on stage with his brothers kind of really overshadowed that for me. Yeah. And I think they're really great observations. And, 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 and I think that's the thing with the 30th anniversary concert at the time. Well, many of us that watched it, we became fans from it. So we were kind of, there was a bit of a veil over our eyes in some ways where we were so enamored by it and the theatrics of it and the clever editing and all the interludes and everything that it was hard then to look through it. We didn't know a lot then like we know now around Michael's struggles. So, Vinay, I'm interested in in your thoughts too. So, you were there watching it. Had you seen Michael Jackson shows before this one? I've been a fan for right now 38 years. At that point, I'm not sure where I was in my time frame, but I was never old enough to go see any of the shows. And so the first time I saw him was actually in 98. I went to Germany by myself to go see him at the uh, What More Can I Give Benefit concert. So this was only my second and third time seeing him perform live. So for me, it's the same thing as Sean. Like I was so excited. Like I didn't even notice any of, you know, the, the hand over the mouth and Michael appearing to be tired and none of that stuff even mattered because the excitement that was in that room was just over the top. And I'm not going to lie. I didn't care about anybody who came on before him. I mean, I was happy to see <laughs> Destiny's Child, but I was like, okay, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Because I had just went through this in Germany because it was like a million performers before Michael's, it was a benefit concert. So I already sat through a million people performing before him. 
and I was not excited to do it again. I was just like, get to Michael, get to Michael. Once it started, oh my gosh, I just remember being so teary eyed and just in awe the whole show. I don't even remember sitting back down once he took that stage. I just remember being on my feet the entire time. And for some reason on the second night, when I wasn't in the front row, being on the side of the stage, I was more mesmerized over there. For some reason, I was like in a daze. My cousin said I didn't even blink. The whole thing for me was just the magic of Michael, the excitement. I didn't know anything, like not even Whitney Houston's weight. I didn't even know that that was an issue until I saw the news the next day. When you're there, it was just so much excitement and so much energy from the fans and from the performers that you aren't even thinking anything negative, you know? Yeah. It was very exciting. You know, there there were some really great things about it. The live vocals during the Jackson 5 set, there's some really great moments in there. And I'm, and I'm guessing, Charlie Carter, you would have maybe had a similar experience to me. Did you watch it when it, in, on TV in 2001 or did you, did you come to it a bit later? No, my experience would have been the same as Charlie Thompson's really because right. um, I was in the UK at the time and – uh, yeah, I would have been about 15, 16. And to be perfectly honest, these 30th anniversary concerts were probably the first concerts of Michael Jackson's that I saw as a fan. Yeah, I wasn't really aware of them until at all in any way, shape or form until several months later when it finally came on the TV. Uh, and like Vinay, I was, you know, forget about the opening acts, get to Michael and his brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were some good ones and there were some bombs and we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk <laughs> about sure. our fa- we're going to talk about our favorites <laughs> and our least favorite shortly. But um Charlie Thompson, take us through like your thoughts on the context for this show and you know, especially in the times prior to it happening when they were rehearsing and leading up to it. I mean, clearly looking back on it now, it's we've got to be honest about it. You know, if we look if we look back at Michael in the seventies, eighties and, and early nineties, these concerts we couldn't really characterize as Michael's finest hour. Um, they kind of really foreshadowed what would happen eight years later. If we especially read um, some of the accounts that have come out since the shows, like if we read David Guest's book, Frank Cassio's book, Jermaine Jackson's books, we can get a real picture of what was going on behind the scenes and it was extremely problematic. So I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, walk us through, um, Charlie, walk us through your thoughts when you saw it and then, yeah, some of that background leading up to it. Well, for me, there are three shows here. There's the televised show and then there's the two actual shows. So there's night one, night two, and then what we saw on TV. And I saw those in reverse. So I saw the TV edit and it was a brilliant edit. You know, they did a great job of stitching it together and making it look passable. And then back at at that time, there was no YouTube. This was all pre-YouTube. So the only way to get footage was you had to go online and order VHSs from other fans. Mm -hmm. So there were fans who had websites where you could pay, say, 20 pounds or 20 euros or something for a four-hour VHS tape, and they would fill it up with clips from their collection. So I ordered, at some point, the fan camera videos, you know, one of night one and one of night two. And then it's just like, oh, my God, you know, particularly night one, you realize that what you saw on TV is incredibly deceptive, particularly as regards the quality of the first night. 
I mean, in terms of context, leading up at the time, you know, I was a teenager. I was a teenager that used to go into my local record store about four times a year and say, have you got a release date for the new Michael Jackson album when there wasn't one, you know, because there was no internet. I didn't have the internet. So that was the only way to try and find out if something was happening. And this was right in the build up to Invincible. So it was it was something you were reading about in the newspapers. You know, there's an album coming. He's doing these concerts. And I remember the press from the first night was really bad. You know, Marlon Brando getting booed off the stage, slow hand claps, etc. So, you know, the, the press was terrible. And then if you want me to go and see, you know, what we now know in terms of the, the context that we didn't know then that we do know now, of course, it's that on night one, he didn't show up for the the gig. Everyone's waiting for him to walk up the red carpet and then take his seat because the company that was at CBS, I forget who they sold it to, whoever it was that was filming it. Part of the arrangement was that they were supposed to be filming Michael's reaction to all the tributes and he just didn't show up. So David Guest starts making phone calls and saying, where's Michael and Frank Cassio has to go and break into Michael's hotel room and finds him unconscious. And uh, Michael, according to Frank Cassio's book, and I believe this has been corroborated by Karen Fay on Twitter many times, Michael had had a doctor come and give him something to knock him out, essentially to try and get out of going to the gig, try and get out of doing the show. So they had to force feed him like donuts and Gatorade or something just to wake him up enough to get him on the stage. And he barely made it through that first night. And when you watch the, the fan camera footage, I mean, he is absolutely off his tits. I mean, he looks like (laughs) someone set him on fire and puts him out with a cricket bat. And he looks like he has not got by the end of the show. He looks like he doesn't know where he is at the end of the first show. There was this, horrendous section where Quincy Jones came on and pretended to conduct something and Michael popped back up in a silver jacket looking slightly like a a, a down market waxwork museum waxwork of Michael Jackson with a silver jacket on it and just looked like he didn't even know where he was. It was horrendous, you know. So there's so many different interpretations of this show. You know, if you were talking to somebody who's only seen the televised version, they would have no concept of the reality of those shows. It had a pretty interesting conception, this show. They, from notes in these books, Michael um, was sort of taking a break from recording Invincible in 2000. And he and Frank Cassio and David Guess were all sort of hanging out at Neverland and decided to go on this epic road trip, I think, to Las Vegas. And there's a really funny story about them sort of uh, hiring this bus and taking the bus to Vegas. And the bus driver, just for whatever reason, was David Guest for a portion of the trip. And he can, you know, he's not a very good driver. So he's driving (laughs) around, he's like driving around all these cliffs and like nearly coming off the edge. And and it was apparently on this bus trip that these guys were having such a good time and, and drinking and and chatting about what they could do with some kind of tribute show. And uh, apparently that's where the show was conceived on this bus trip. And then it went through like months and like a year long process of um, Frank Cassio and David Guest sort of 
putting it together. But it's kind of interesting to read that in Frank's book, he talks about having all of this involvement really in my, you know, fine detail. David Guest doesn't even mention Frank Cassio in his book at all. <laughs> so what really happened there, I'm not really sure. But it, it did have a pretty turbulent sort of um, production period, I would say. The, the There was a lot of controversy leading up to the shows. For example, Jermaine was, you know, he, he says in his book, he was really quite sort of unhappy with things like the ticket prices and how some of those were getting up to around $10,000 for a ticket. I think he and Randy, even before the show happened, they did some kind of like they issued a statement condemning the ticket prices and they said that they wouldn't even perform, um, but they ended up backing down um, in the end and, and taking the stage with Michael. And Jermaine sort of recalls that Jackie was the one marshalling everybody together to do a good job in rehearsals. And then as we get sort of closer to the show, there's even more problems happening with Michael very much distancing himself from his family, staying in hotel rooms alone, not wanting to interact with them. And then, of course, the night before, Michael succumbing to that over-medication scenario. So he was being medicated at that time. I can't remember the doctor's name, but he was working for years before with Dr. Farshan, AJ Farshan. Apparently, well, Frank Cassio talks about him as being sort of like some kind of holistic doctor who was able to get Michael weaned off all this pain medication that he was uh, addicted to. And he looked like he was in really good spirits. But then sort of like this is it, leading up to show night, I don't know whether it was anxiety or whatever it was, but Michael really got back into that heavy drug use. And then like you were saying before, Charlie, the night before the show ended up sounding like he almost overdosed or something because he was totally unconscious and all these people had to get him ready to get on stage. That's why he was now LA. It's a really painful kind of thing to read. I think most of that's detailed in David Guest's book, but on that first show night in the hour, the first hour of the show where Michael was meant to be there, you've got all of these people turning up. Like everyone in the industry really was there. You had Teddy Riley, Quincy, Puff Daddy, Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, Liam Neeson, all these people were there that aren't, you know, they're not on the televised version, but the audience is full of like celebrities. And you've got Tommy Mottola, Michael's record label boss, is like going backstage trying to rev Michael to get on the stage and David Guest stopping him. It really is just something to behold how much of a mess it was. It must have been excruciating for the people that were putting it together. So, yeah, I guess, Charlie, walk us through like what you saw in because you had the privilege, I guess, of going to Hamid Moslehi's house and he was Michael's videographer and you saw rehearsal footage there. So what, what were you seeing when you saw that? Yeah, I went to Hamid's studio with Taj in 2019 on a sort of a reconnaissance mission to see what Hamid had and whether it could be of any use to Taj in um his project that he's working on. And one of the things that was in Hamid's collection was all of this rehearsal footage of Michael with his brothers, basically in a studio, like a dance studio, a mirrored dance studio, but with a whole band set up and they're just running the Jackson set over and over again. And Michael looks really engaged. I mean, he doesn't look great physically. He, um, you know, he's got this sort of a very long, flat sort of Alanis Morissette like hairpiece on and his nose has tape on and stuff. But in terms of 
um, his performance. I mean, he's just so much better than he was come show nights. You know, he, he just looks like he's having a lot more fun. He looks a lot more engaged. He looks physically fitter, which is very strange because it can't be that much before the shows actually happened. Whereas on the night of, on the, the nights of the shows, he looked kind of a bit heavy and worn out and, um, I don't know. He just didn't look great. Whereas in the rehearsal footage, he looks really good. And even by the time they had moved to Madison Square Garden and were actually rehearsing on the stage there, he still looked better than he did come show night. And he actually had the long curly hair. So I do wonder whether possibly that was the plan that maybe that was the plan for show night, but because of the late arrival and the disaster that happened on show the night of show one and then the need for continuity for the edit between show one and show two maybe they had to ditch the hair i don't know he he looks like michael jackson in the rehearsals whereas vanay mentioned being at the german benefit concert two years earlier and two years earlier he looked like michael jackson still you know he's he's lip-syncing that performance or whatever but he's dancing brilliantly and he looks like michael jackson then you fast forward to the madison square gardens 2001 and it's like a whole different person it's remarkable the the sort of the difference in him in that very brief window and i find it interesting charlie that you say that because there's a stark contrast to uh, almost 20 years earlier when they did motown 25 you know the reports uh, were the uh, the rehearsals were absolutely terrible uh, but the actual live performance was legendary and so to hear 20 years later it's the exact opposite it really kind of lets us know that this was the beginning of the end of of or you know we could see it was a downward spiral um because the the stories about the Motown 25 rehearsals uh, where they, they were just not good. The brothers were not in sync, but show, come, come showtime, it was on point. So it's just interesting to hear uh, how, how different, you know, it turned out. It's, it's really interesting you say that, Sean, because one thing we also know is that just prior to the show's happening, I think it must have been a few weeks before, Michael tried to get David Guest out of the picture and actually brought back in um, Suzanne DePass, who was really involved with that Motown 25 special from memory. And he tried to bring her back and John McClane to co-produce alongside David. But Guest must have seen this as a massive power play and then threatened Michael with a lawsuit and got rid of those guys and just did the, the rest of it himself. Michael must have had some degree of awareness it was going in a direction he didn't want and tried to make it like the old days. And Suzanne DePasses, I mean, he that would that would have been a great idea because she she puts on uh, great you know um, shows. I mean, anything that she has her hands on turns out uh, excellent. So that would have been you know if Michael was thinking that and if he wanted to do that, that made a lot of sense for him at the time. Hmm. But you know, I have to say, as a fan who was in the audience, that I'm serious. None of that stuff mattered that night. I mean, it's like. Like I said, looking back on everything now and listening to everybody, I can certainly understand everybody's points. But I'm I'm telling you, being in that atmosphere and feeling that energy, whether he was on his very best or his very worst, really didn't even make a difference. It was it was something about the reunion of those brothers and 
seeing the happiness on their mother's face when they took the stage and just the energy of seeing something like that that we hadn't seen in years. And then to see Michael take the stage in Madison Square Garden and hear the crowd, like, all I'm telling you, none of that stuff for me personally on night one or night two, nothing Nothing. The only negativity that stood out, like you were saying, was people like Marlon Brandon. And, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of Liza Minnelli singing. And it, like I don't my, think anyone was. The, the ne- yeah, the negative <laughs> stuff that stood out for me was always someone else. And like I said, again, in hindsight, I can see some of those things now. I can see some of the things that people are complaining about, about Michael. But as someone who was there, and especially a biased fanatic because I am a fanatic. I'm a, I'm a super fan. I, like I said, I've been a fan for 38 years. I can tell you that everybody was either screaming, crying, or this close to passing out. It, it was not one of those moments where we're all sitting around being critical saying, you know, he's really not doing his best tonight. You didn't even have time to think along those lines because the level of excitement and the magic of Michael Jackson was still present. You know, and now looking back, yeah, of course, I could see a million different things that I wish were different. But experiencing that moment was absolutely phenomenal. And I honestly, that night had nothing, nothing bad to say about them. We were all on some type of super Michael level that night, you know, and it's weird how you can see something one way and then go back and see it a total different way. And they were both two really long nights, you know, the televised, you know, you only see the the handful of people that they picked out. You know, it was just something about being there that I think almost makes me, I guess, less critical because I can still remember the feeling of being in the room, if that makes sense. And I've worked a lot of Michael events, so I don't know where they fall on the timeline. Like I worked his 45th birthday party. I worked the event at Webster Hall. I'm I'm very involved. I mean, since then, I was in the courtroom. I've been to Neverland. I've been, I mean, I've done so many Michael things. And it's hard to say where I was on the time frame, but that wasn't my first time seeing him perform. But yeah, it was still, the magic was, was, the magic was the magic. You know, and maybe because it was only my second and third time, maybe it was still so new to me. But I guarantee you that everybody around me, and I know for a fact, like my friends B and some other people who've seen Michael a million times, these people were screaming and crying. <laughs> these people were screaming and crying too. So it wasn't even like, I don't know. I think it was just something about being there and, and feeling that energy. You know, he did appear to be tired that first night. He did, but it wasn't to the point where, we felt concerned or like something was wrong. And as, as far as him covering his mouth, I always just assume he does that when he forgets his lyrics. So to me, that's normal Michael stuff. So it didn't stand out to me as anything abnormal until every, all the criticism came later. And I was like, oh gosh, I didn't even notice that. Well, we didn't even notice. We were just screaming and dancing and having such a great time. It was such an awesome experience, you know? Yeah, and I think there is a lot of um, that's a testament to Michael's power as a as an artist, really, to cut through all of that, the struggles he was going through, and all of that uh, difficulties around the production. You know, he still was able to cut through that and appeal to people like me, who became a huge fan um, from right. watching the, watching the show. So I think that's an important perspective, and I can't wait to to talk about some of your experiences watching the actual shows. But I, I was going to say also, if you don't mind, uh, I agree with Renee. Like I said, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, 
being there, watching it on TV, and then looking looking back on it in hindsight, you know, you get three different reactions. But you know, although I was not there, you know, my reactions were the same. You know, I was you know right. losing my mind the moment he hit the stage. <laughs> I didn't notice anything until after the fact. As so I think right. that's just the power of Michael Jackson, the power of the Jacksons is what they bring to the stage when it's showtime. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we've got we've got to remember like what Michael had been through in the 10 years prior. He hadn't really performed on the American mainland for I don't know how many years. Like it would have been close to like that 12 13 years since the bad tour. So he, you know, he had performed in Hawaii uh, during the history tour, but I mean, of course, you know, in the in the intervening years, there had been the allegations, the media scrutiny. Um, the U.S. well, a large portion of the U.S. had probably sort of rejected him in a lot of ways. His, the history album did not get a lot of promotion in the U.S. So when when it comes to these concerts, it's kind of like pretty momentous because Michael is there in front of his family. His mother's in the audience, like. You know, and seeing the look on her face when her sons are performing again is pretty priceless. Like the pride in her eyes is pretty evident when you're watching the show. And so for Michael to be on stage in the US again, performing after everything he'd been through, there's power in that as well. Right, right. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I, I definitely understand the criticism, but it was it was an amazing experience to be there. It really was. And at the end of the day, it, it's, you know, Michael Jackson had been in the industry or he had released his first solo album 30 years ago. Uh, and so that was something to be celebrated. So uh, regardless of if he had been, you know, performing in the U S or not, you know, he was, that was still going to be a draw in person and on TV. And so I, I just think that, and I, if, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was a, it was a huge draw. I mean, the, the ratings I think were off the charts for that show, for those televised shows. So he was still going to be a draw um, no matter what. Right. For me, the concert, like I say, I didn't see too much about it until it appeared on British television. And with regards to him covering the microphone, again, I just thought that was a, a Michael Jackson, uh, you know, characteristic. Uh, I didn't really think too much of that. And I was still pretty naive at that time when it came to lip syncing and recording. I thought, well, he's clearly singing at the end of the way you make me feel. Therefore, he must be singing it all. Isn't it incredible how he makes it sound just like the recording? So I was pretty <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty naive about um, <laughs> how good his singing ability was at that point. Um, it was the first time I'd seen any video clip of him performing live with his brothers other than the historic Jackson 5 videos. So for for me, it was an introduction to seeing him perform live uh, other than the 1999 concert in, in Germany. I hadn't seen any of the Dangerous Tour or Bad Tour, you know, up to that point. But I think, like Charles said earlier, it was several months after the uh, the concert actually took place before I saw anything about it. And it would have been sometime in 2002, I reckon. And then we started getting a bit more of Michael Jackson in the media with the whole baby dangling incident in Berlin right. and then leading up to the Martin Bashir documentary. But the concerts itself, I thought they were great. It was great for me to see an up-to-date Michael Jackson doing a moonwalk and it introduced me to some of the other, some of his other music catalogue that I wasn't aware of at that time through the, the little transitions between his performances. So I wasn't aware of the song Ghosts at that point, for example. Uh, so it actually opened my eyes to a lot more of his material than I gave it credit for at the time. 
yeah, those interludes were really the editing um, of those concerts is is pretty pretty insane because a lot of the interludes I love how they cover like one of them will be about Michael as a dancer and then another interlude will be about him as a humanitarian. Yeah, right. And and just the footage they included in all of that was so. I mean, it was obviously very carefully crafted to not only honor Michael but to really appeal to like a lot of younger people that hadn't seen his career before and um boy did it work it was fitting <laughs> it was it was fitting fitting for for Michael yeah yeah i agree i agree so yeah just to sort of delve back into that first night and what sort of happened david guest is there sitting in the audience watching this and he 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 says things like every time i looked at michael i just felt worse he seemed totally out of control he sat there stony-faced watching the show moving his hand to say thank you to people as they sang to him and then it was a very problematic night because it was going very over time and apparently they were being charged a hundred thousand dollars an hour um by by the venue because it was going so long Uh, i think there was also issues with like the length of time between each song because and the reason there was so much time between each song was because the camera people had to like reset their lenses or something due to the different lighting conditions, which like really pushed out the runtime. And uh, basically after it as well, there was meant to be a party at the Tavern on the Green. And Michael, uh, all the people that had paid a certain amount of money or above got to go to that and meet Michael and have dinner. And Michael said he wasn't going to (laughs) go anymore to that. And David Guest blew up. And he's quoted in his book as telling Michael, let me tell you uh, one thing, young man. If you don't go to this party, you will not see one paycheck from me. Also, if you are not here at four o'clock on Monday for the second show, you'll lose about $5,000 a minute from your paycheck. Um, I'm serious. I sign the checks. One minute over, you lose $5,000. If you're an hour late, you owe me three hundred thousand dollars now i mean when you when you read that it sounds like a very condescending way to talk to michael jackson i guess we need to remember that david guest was friends with michael since they were both kids so they they had a very unique relationship david guest is saying things like something was wrong with him i knew everyone knew there was an emergency meeting that took place on september 9th and david guest revved everyone who worked on the show I'm assuming Michael Prince and Michael Bearden were there as well. He also lectured Michael saying, how could you do this? We could have lost a fortune. What the hell's wrong with you? How could you have been so stupid? Meaning the the drug use just before the show. And really, Michael obviously got that message because he came to the rehearsals for the second show ready to kick ass. And we know when we're watching the amateur footage from the first and the second nights, obviously the second night is a lot, a lot tighter. So they fixed it right up, ready for that. I, I didn't really learn much of the backstory of the show and, and how bad a condition Michael was in until reading Frank Cassio's book. But then I sort of got the feeling from reading Frank Cassio's book that this was a Frank Cassio production and Frank Cassio deserves all the credit. Mm-hmm. I haven't read David Guest's book yet or the part in Jermaine's book about their point of view, but what do they say? You, you can get two sides or multiple sides to every story and somewhere in the middle is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, if Frank Cassio is the only source, then that definitely would be problematic. I think since 2010, the whole fan community is known not to put a lot of stock in anything with the, the name Cassio on it. But 
Karen Fay has told the story many times, and David Guest told the story not only in his book but also in his um his documentary that he made, Life of an Icon. And also, if you do go back and um, watch the footage of Michael arriving on that first night, it's very revealing. He sort of is. He walks up the red carpet with Liz Taylor who of course is pretty ancient by then. And he is source of clinging to Liz Taylor for support, whereas it should be the other way around. And he walked up the red carpet with his flies undone with white showing through his flies. He was interviewed briefly by a few cameras on the red carpet and he was slurring. You know, you can see what, what a bad state he's in when he arrives on that first night. And I think, um, Definitely the second night was much improved and much of what we see in the TV edit is from the second night. The other thing that's important to remember, a couple of things, because people were talking about Michael's hand over his mouth. Part of that clearly is lip syncing, trying to disguise his lip syncing, but also on one of the nights, and I can't remember whether it was night one or night two, he had some kind of reaction that there was something wrong with his face and the whole of his top lip came up really red and sore, possibly a lupus thing. And it actually had to be digitally blurred for the broadcast. And if you watch the the TV footage from the Beat It performance in particular in high res, you can see all the blurring across his top lip. They had to do something. They had to colorize the footage for most of the gigs, and then they had to blur the top lip for certain footage that they taken. In terms of the edit for the TV show, there were also I remember reading redubs. So some of the vocals that you're hearing from the Jackson Five section are actually subsequently recorded and then pasted in to cover up the vocals from the uh, from the night. I always thought that might have been the case where I think it was uh, Randy singing the open, opening lines for one of the songs, and I thought, well, I don't think that that's live. It just didn't sound like the same quality as the rest of the recording. Yeah, I think it is noticeable at points. And, and that's not a new thing for them. I remember reading an article a few months ago where I think they did the same thing for the Jackson's live album, where Michael was not very pleased with certain parts of it, so he went back and recorded over those parts. So that's not a, a new thing for them. No. The magic of audio editing, hey? That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's move into the actual shows. We start off with Sam Jackson, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, which is pretty epic. I mean, if you want anybody to open your tribute concert, like I can't think of a cooler person than to do it than <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. And and we won't go through all of the tribute acts you know, one by one, because that would just take forever. As much as I would love to do that, because I've got thoughts about all of them. But um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but there's some, you know, I think we could just go around the table and talk about like our favorites and least favorites. And, and I actually, I really think the opening number doesn't get like as much credit as what it deserves, because so many people are kind of fixated on Whitney Houston's, how sick she looked or thin, I should say. And I think that that digital editing technique you were talking about before, Charlie, that from memory, I'm pretty sure they applied that to her as well, like a chest area. I remember there being like an Entertainment Tonight report on that. Someone had uncovered that they'd done that or something. But 
uh, I think it was Maya Usher and and Whitney Houston doing Wannabe Starting Something. And mm-hmm. and the thing I love about the the 30th anniversary concert, so one of the things I love about it, and especially in this number, is the fact that they've got like a full-blown like orchestra above the stage. Like they've got strings, yes. they've got percussionists. It is really, really epic. And if there's one thing that sets this show apart from lots of other Michael Jackson shows is you get to hear his songs with a much fuller band, which and and a lot more dancers on the stage as well, which is which is really cool. And a lot of those people that were in the in the crew or in the band actually, yeah, obviously like Bashiri Johnson and Alex Al and these people, I don't think Michael had really worked with them before 2001, but a lot of them ended up coming back for um for this is it. So um want to be starting something really great, great dancing, great vocals. I thought it was really excellent. That would have to be one of my highlights. I've got some more I want to mention later, but let's uh let's go around the table. What what are your favorites and what are your what what were the worst of the uh the tribute acts? So we'll start oh, please, with Please let me. Let's go, Vinay. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> okay, so as far as my my picks, I thought um the young man, what was his name? Uh Billy Billy Gilman. Gilman. Mm-hmm. Billy Gilman. Beautiful performance. I thought his performance was really, it was an appropriate song for him age-wise. Uh, I thought he did a great job. So, And that was my first time ever seeing this kid. Like I said earlier, I really loved Destiny's Child's performance. I thought Shaggy was really fun, a little wild, but fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of pumping going on yeah, there. Yeah, and Michael's but, reaction um, <laughs> to that pumping is pretty yeah. good too. <laughs> um, but on the flip side, I could have really done without the Heal the World performance, especially the rap segment. Oh, raw dear. I just don't think Heal the World is a song that needs a rap in the middle of it. <laughs> I thought it really took away the beauty. That song is so beautiful and so pure. And rap is just not for everything. That was the wrong. You could have put the rap in any other song that night. I don't know whose bright idea that was. I thought that was a huge mistake and really kind of over the top. I wasn't really thrilled with Mark Anthony's She's Out of My Life. Not sure why, but it just didn't. And like I said before, Liza Minnelli. Oh. Oh. Yeesh. You know, I know Michael loved her, so I tried to be kind, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't, it didn't need to be that dramatic for that night. Yeah. I, I think I think we probably all can agree on that. I'm speaking for everyone here, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, don't, I don't know. We may need to take a vote on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the worst thing for me was definitely the Hill, the World, and the rap that was in it. Yeah. That was my absolute least favorite. <laughs> and Marlon Brando's appearance altogether, which I know is not on the televised version, but I don't even remember what he said or did. I just remember everybody hated it. And he was rude to people in the audience and he was nasty and everybody was ready for him to go. Yeah. Wasn't he like the first thing to happen on the first night? Was, didn't he open <laughs> yeah, the Yeah, he thing? was like really early in the show. I mean, it's been years. I really can't remember. But it's, he was very early on and just not the person <laughs> to set the tone for such an uplifting event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was just telling people to be quiet and it was just not... Yeah, I would have definitely cut him out of the loop altogether, and he could have took the the rapper with him. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Okay, so that's just my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I actually like Mark Anthony's "She's Out of My Life." There was something about how he approached it, 
and so I actually, I, I won't say that was my, my favorite, but I actually really, really liked it. I also liked it because I've watched uh, both the televised and then I've gone back and watched the show uh, with all of the clips in it, with all the performances in it, I should say. I, I really did like the the Wiz um, mm-hmm. tribute that they did uh, with Jill Scott, Monica, and Deborah Cox, and Al Jarreau. <laughs> I really like that. But I'm going to tell you, the, the standout performance for me, and it wasn't long enough, was Man in the Mirror and Luther Vandross. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was good. I, I, I needed good. him. I, I needed him to really take control of that song. I, well, he already took control of it. It wasn't long enough. I needed more of Luther and less he of... He could have did it Usher. by himself. He could yes. have did it by himself. By himself. Sure. Less of Usher mm-hmm. and less of 98 Degrees. Uh, <laughs> and then at some point, you know, uh, Usher tried to kind of go back and forth with it. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, Usher, no. No, you, <laughs> you, you may want def- to defer to Luther Vandra. So, um, but at that moment, though, Luther captured you know, that song and it, and it just took it to a different level. So for me, that was my favorite part uh, of, of the tribute performances. Uh, now, again, I will agree with Renee. I was not a fan of uh, Liza Minnelli and I, <laughs> I don't see the point of Aaron Carter. I want candy. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I just I, I just didn't understand those two performances. And I those were my two that I did not care for. But I will go back and say that um, I Just Can't Stop Loving You by James Ingram and Gloria Estefan was really good as well. Yeah, um, yeah that was so, nice. so for me, it was those performances, those actual tribute performances, people actually singing his songs that I liked better. Uh, but when people started to do their own, you know, I, I didn't really care for it as much. Yeah, yeah. Now, Charlie Thompson, I'm guessing, I'm just going to guess for you here, all right? But I'm I'm guessing that your absolute favorite was was Aaron Carter's "I Want Candy." <laughs> <laughs> well, we in the UK we were very very fortunate in that the whole broadcast was only ninety minutes. So, and that included J Five and Michael. So we only got about you know, 40 minutes of bullshit stuck on the beginning. (laughs) And so a lot of the performances that you're talking about were not included in the, in the UK version. And I'm sort of at odds with Sean here because for me, I hated everything where somebody was performing a Michael song. Really? Because I just think, I just think you can't, it's just, you're never going to be able to do it. So just don't bother trying, you know, it's, it's always <laughs> underwhelming when somebody tries to cover a Michael Jackson song. And so the only three performances that I remember enjoying were Gloria Gaynor, Gladys Knight and Destiny's Child. And that saying that a lot of the performances that you're talking about were not in the UK version. So there was no Luther Vandross, okay. you know, there was no James Ingram, etc. Fortunately, there was no Liza Minnelli either. Um, <laughs> interestingly about Marlon Brando, I think that David Guest says either in the documentary or the book that that was a Michael contribution. And not only was he unhappy with it, but he later found out that Michael had actually paid Marlon Brando separately a lot more money uh, on top of the actual budget that had been allocated to him from the concert production budget 
which I don't know why my because Michael did the same thing on the video for you, you rock, rock my, my world, world. yeah and, which again Marlon Brando's contribution to that video is completely nonsensical <laughs> I mean he yeah. just walks down right. some stairs and then Michael says I know who you are and then it's like well, who, tell us, tell us who he is. <laughs> and then he says something like Big Bang. Like it makes yeah, no sense. Like what? Bada, bada boom. It's like bada boom or something crazy. It's like, yeah. it's like a page of script blew out of the window when they were shooting that day yeah. or something. Because you're watching it going, okay, so you know who he is, but we don't know who he is. Can someone explain what's going on? Um, so anyway, Michael was obsessed with Marlon Brando at that point in time in late 2001. and was just throwing money at him to do any any old bollocks and the other thing that's notable which jermaine spoke about quite a lot that he was very unhappy with was the lack of motown representation in the acts that were chosen to perform he felt that there, there was a kind of a slight on motown there there was almost nobody there i mean gladys knight had a, a bit of motown connection was there anybody else there from motown i don't think so but i don't but- think so but as but as I think about that, I don't know how many Motown acts at that time you could have called on. Yeah, I suppose Smokey. And I think they were trying to appeal a younger audience too, and have more current artists that people are familiar with at that time period, like your Ushers and your Destiny's Childs and your Mayas, because Michael's celebrating thirty years. But you also want to get new people to watch, so you can get Destiny's Child fans to watch. And you can get in sync fans to watch. And you, you know what I mean? But it all still leads to Michael. But I think they were just trying to appeal to a broader audience instead of making it like some old time, you know, reunion show. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess you could have called on Boys to Men who were Motown at a Motown act at one point in time. You could have called on The Barge, uh, which was a Motown act. So I guess there, there were a few of a few Motown acts that you could have relied on. But I think, again, I think back to the Motown 25, you know, all of those artists are, you know, were passed on or uh, definitely not, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't attract the same audience as an NSYNC or a 98 Degrees or Usher. Right. But if you think about, for example, a Diana Ross versus a Liza Minnelli, I know which Point one taken. would seem to have made a- sense. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. 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 All right. I stand corrected on that one. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. I stand I corrected. I agree. I agree. I think um, Liza Minnelli's inclusion might have had a little bit more to do with her relationship her with the uh, <laughs> yeah. showrunner. But, um, yeah. So, okay. Okay. I, I'm loving these thoughts. All right. Carter, your thoughts. Who were the bombs? Who were good? Oh, look, a lot of what I was thinking has already been covered. I mean, with what Charlie Thompson said about it only being a 90-minute special in the UK, um, unfortunately, that 90 minutes did include the rap in Heal the World. And, who, <laughs> you know, whoever made that call, their decision-making capabilities have got to be questioned. <laughs> kind of person that throw a rock at the ground and miss. But I quite enjoyed <laughs> Destiny's Child, even though I'm not you know, a massive fan of them. I thought their performance and their, their nods to Michael throughout it were, were pretty cool. Usher was always you know, half decent. But as I said earlier, I was pretty much fast forwarding through and, and getting through to the, the Jacksons and the Michael performance. Ray Charles made an appearance as well, which I've subsequently watched and, and quite enjoyed. But yeah, I, I think Gloria Gaynor as well stood out for me as a, uh, I'd never heard I Will Survive performed live, and I quite enjoyed that. And I have to repeat what others have said, and I hate to 
you know, crap on someone who's got the same surname as me. But Aaron Carter, what were you doing? <laughs> yeah, that, that was an embarrassment. That was really bad. <laughs> um, yep, I'm pretty much agreeing with everybody. My favorites were definitely the Wiz tribute. I loved Gladys Knight. I loved Dion Warwick. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed Destiny's Child at the time as well because they were huge right then. Like mm-hmm. they were like the biggest thing out in 2001. So to see them kind of pay tribute to Michael with the fedoras and the Billie Jean sort of dance moves and stuff. That was that was really, really cool. I love watching Michael's reactions during a lot of these. Like mm-hmm. some of them, yes, he does not look well or present. But in others, like he's really getting into it. Like he's kind of dancing in his seat to the Destiny's Child stuff. His, you know, I think he, he mouths, the, he says something like, I love this song during the Shaggy thing. And <laughs> it's actually yeah. just really, that was a clever thing to do to show him reacting to all these artists. Yeah, Vinay, I think you said earlier that it was pretty intentional to put a lot of sort of current artists in to appeal to young people at the time. And I think those are the performances that have really not aged well. Like in Australia, we got much more than the 90-minute version. We got something that was nearly three hours. So wow. we we saw it was a really long event and we saw most of the tribute acts, including – we had like um, Nelly Furtado and Missy Elliott okay. doing Get Your Freak On. We had Lil Romeo and Master P, like who I don't even know who they are anymore. And <laughs> a lot, like, and, and Aaron Carter and, and all of these like, yeah, ones that people just don't discuss now. And I think they're the ones that have not aged well. <laughs> I don't even remember them being, I don't even remember seeing them. There you go. (laughs) And you were there. (laughs) (laughs) The the Australian broadcast was actually twice. So we we got one version that had like crazy ratings. Like most people in Australia tuned in to watch it. And it was that three-hour version I talked about. It was so successful that they showed it in prime time again two weeks later but they dropped in the Britney Spears performance that wasn't in the first version. Yeah, right. I remember not seeing that clip for many, many years, even though I'd seen still photographs of it. Did you see that pretty early on? I was wondering why they didn't choose to go with that version, though. Apparently that lady that was in the other performance is known for being a dancer for Prince. I'm not familiar with her, but um, I can't remember her name now because I just found out like this week. But I, I just felt like the Britney one was more... I don't know. It was due to contracting issues with Britney Spears and who she was contracted at the time and whether she could appear on, on, uh, was it CBS? Oh, okay, okay. It it was weird that they didn't include that because it actually also included from memory the whole The Way You Make Me Feel, um, the dance breakdown at the end. Mm -hmm. That's in the Britney version, but from memory that's not in in the televised version with the dancer. Yeah, they just do the the jumping and pointing towards the sky thing in the televised version, don't and, they? And if, if there was a contract issue, they should have just picked somebody else, you know, another celebrity that that could be televised because instead of giving us the unknown person, you know. Yeah, it kind of makes me think, and this is something I want to talk about more to the, towards the end of our recording, but. There are still a lot of names. I'm just scrolling through it here on Wikipedia. There are still a lot of names in these tribute sections that are pretty current now or are classic artists. They could really make something of this still, I think. Right, right. Anyway, right. So then after all these tribute acts happen, we've got Liz Taylor comes on stage 
introduces the Jacksons, and I think she does a really good job. Like she actually gets people hyped. I was I was hyped watching it. You know, her describing Michael. It was time. Like these tributes had been yeah. on for a <laughs> minute yes, uh, yes. in the yes. televised version. I can't imagine what it would have been would have been like in the audience. Um, I think it must have been like <laughs> right. three hours or something. Like get point. to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Liz Taylor comes out and then announces the Jacksons, and then there's like firework explosion, and then there they are on stage. Michael comes up through the stage in. Uh, all white costume, white jacket with gold jetpack looking thing on the back, like he's just flown in from Bucharest. <laughs> and then he's got his motorbike helmet. He's good to go. And there we go. We have the Jacksons on stage. So reactions. Vinay, you were there in the audience. Tell me, what was it like to see the Jackson brothers on stage again? So for me, this was my first time seeing them together because I had only seen Michael. So I could not even believe it was happening. It was, and, and the funny thing is like, my husband is a J5 Jackson's super fan. I'm a Michael Solo super fan. But of course, being married now, we've kind of merged into each other's, we're now we're all over the place. I like what he likes, he likes what I like. So I didn't have my husband yet then. So I appreciate that moment more now because I've gotten so involved in the Jacksons and the Jacksons music. But even then, me being such a Michael Solo fanatic, I still understood and appreciated how spectacular that moment was. You know, and you can tell just by the crowd, like this is something that people had been yearning to see for so long and people had wanted this. I know Michael really wasn't trying to do any reunion stuff. So to see him finally up there with his brothers, it was, you know, I have to admit, I did get a little emotional. It was very exciting. It was, and I didn't know what to expect. So I just remember screaming and getting a little teary-eyed and just the hype and the noise level in there was just insane. It was, And I'm pretty sure that Randy Jackson winked at me twice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it could be my imagination. It could be my imagination, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nice. Okay, so when you were watching it, what were you, some of your highlights of their their performance? What songs did you really like? I loved when they did "I'll Be There" because I loved the high note that Michael hit at the end of that. Mm-hmm. That was like a weird note that I had never heard him do before. Um, Dancing Machine. I wanted him to do a little bit more of his robot from one end of the stage to the other like he used to do traditionally. I felt like it was kind of cut short. And that might have been, you know, again, from the, with everything else that was going on with him. But I was cool. I, I mean, I was excited. I was just happy that he was finally on the stage. I didn't care what they sang at that point. I was just happy that they were finally up there. But I loved it. I really did. I don't think it was anything that stood out as anything negative that I can think of offhand. Yeah, yeah. I think the Jackson section for me is probably the high point of the entire thing. Um, everything was just so... Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, singing live throughout throughout that set. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. the lip syncing. That was live. great. Yeah, that so was great. It was. Gr- it's always great to hear Michael sing live. So, Sean, I mean, you you are a big Jacksons guy. So, how was this for you to see? Uh, again, I think with when Michael is on stage with his brothers, 
it's a different level of uh, energy. Uh, and you could see it. You can see it between, you know, uh, his set and his brother's set. You know, they are just, it was just phenomenal to watch him and Randy. Uh, and I still need to get the, the the correct story on the, during ABC, when Randy started saying, are you down, you, you down with OPP? You know, was that playful or was Michael actually upset about that? <laughs> but That is an ongoing debate in this house with me and my husband. I think it was intentional to remind people that, OPP and songs like that are still pulling from the Jackson Five. My husband thinks it has more to do with the romance drama with Jermaine and Randy and their wives and, <laughs> and that it wasn't on purpose. So we still debate about this. So I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I actually thought it was like Michael didn't want that. Don't reference that during our song. And so I, okay. I, I, that's kind of what I thought. Like, OK, no, you don't don't say that during our song. But you know, I, and I don't know if it was it was a playful thing between the two of them, but you know, again, just to see, you know, once they hit the stage, once they, you know, started to pose with, you know, again, Marlon with the torch, and you know, they're standing there in the wind. It was just, you know, can you feel it was great. I liked ABC. I, I, I like Verne. I wanted to see more of Michael do the classic robot during a uh, dance machine. Uh, I always, I love Michael Jackson. I absolutely love the Jacksons. And I, I've said this before, you know, I would prefer to see Michael on stage with his brothers. And so for me, that was the highlight of the night. Well, I agree with Sean. I was saying for the last however many years of Michael's life, I said, if if Michael goes back on tour, it has to be with his brothers. You're just going to get a much better show if he goes back on the road with his brothers than if he goes on his own. And I think that the J5 or Jackson's set at Madison Square Gardens was definitely the high point of Michael's time on stage those two nights. There's still an, uh, it's kind of, I feel slightly shortchanged by it in the sense that I, I rewatched it on YouTube the other day in preparation for this for the first time in a while and somebody had uploaded the whole Jackson's set without commercial breaks. And it was something like, I don't know, 17 minutes long or something. I couldn't believe it was that short. And then you're getting a lot of the very old kind of corny variety show. Oh, what song should we do next? Oh gee, I don't know. Should we do let's get serious? No, 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 no. You know, all that crap. It's just like, yeah, stop <laughs> faffing a bit. You know, it's, it's so corny. And it's like, yeah, how many times are you going to do this routine? You know, oh, okay, but only if we do it the old-fashioned way, like on its uh, – so, Yeah, but I feel for it. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, you know, pretending to cry at the end of I'll Be There is just like more filler. It's like, yeah, this will fill two minutes. You know, it, it, so it's, you, you're watching it and – it's kind of like you could have done a lot more with this, you know, cut all the fake crying, cut all the fake squabbling about whether we're going to do, I want you back and what dance routine we're going to do and give us an extra song or something. I believe actually that heartbreak hotel was rehearsed and then cut for some reason, which is a shame, big shame. Mm, that would have yes. been great. Dancing machine for me is the low point for various reasons. Number one is NSYNC. <laughs> number two is that even in the very carefully edited and redubbed television version of the show he still manages to sing the whole song off key 
And he's also wearing these like gigantic cricket shin pad things, which means that he can't really <laughs> dance properly either. So the whole thing is just a bit pointless. So yeah, I mean, it's I think for me the highlight of the whole show is um, shake your body mm, because yeah. that's the one yeah, area yeah. where you see Michael kind yeah. of cutting loose and ad libbing a bit and sort of wandering off and dancing freeform rather than choreographed. So, and that's what I like. I love to see Michael having fun on the stage. You know, it's 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 not fun to watch someone who doesn't look like they're having fun. And that right. is the one point in the show where, to me, he comes to life and seems to be really having a good time. So that's the high point for me. Shake your body. Hey, Charlie, I got I to agree with you on Shake Your Body because that song, it, it always, you know, they bring it for that song. There's only one thing that I, I wish they would have done. They typically do the dance move, the shovel. Yeah. At the end, and they didn't do the shovel. I wanted the shovel. And they didn't do it, especially with Randy back with them. It would have been right. I, I, I was waiting for the shovel, but they didn't do it. But Charlie, <laughs> I also want to say that, you know, I agree with you that the the old bit of you know what song do you want us to do? You know, it's kind of old. But again, for us old Jackson fans, that's the throwback to the to the J5 days where they they did it with. Uh, going back to Indiana, they did it with the uh, their melody set during the Jacksons Live. So that's a throwback, but I agree with you. It is kind of uh, it was kind of dated at that point. Well, I'd sort of counter that by saying, for me, given that it was my first experience of seeing anything with all of the Jackson brothers together, it's the first time I'd seen that corny. Hey, what song do you want us to do now? So it may well have been old and dated for for people who'd seen it at the time, but for people who were just being introduced to them, probably was a little. You know, cool little thing that I thought, oh, this makes a good show, doesn't it? And it's a bit of theatre, so it, it can uh, be in, yes. enjoyable. Obviously, subsequently, having watched uh, a ton of Jackson's footage, yes, it now does seem that at that time it was old and dated. But like I say, for me, the first time seeing that, I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. I definitely agree with uh, Shake Your Body being a massive highlight of their set. I'll be honest, I did enjoy Dancing Machine at the time, but I'm one of those really foolish people that has their opinion colored by other people's opinions so now i've heard other people's negative opinion i'm starting to question my own opinion (laughs) (laughs) don't do that (laughs) Um, and like i said earlier it's it's definitely a show that introduced me to a lot of uh, jackson five and early jackson's material i was aware of can you feel it and shake your body uh, and some jackson songs but i wasn't aware of all of the jackson five songs so i'd never heard dancing machine before i'd never heard the love you save before i had heard abc but i hadn't really seen it performed live so Mm -hmm. for me it was a good introduction to the jackson five and the jacksons uh, and that ultimately led me to go and search out some of their music so for me that's a good thing yeah awesome yeah I'm in agreement with with everything uh, you you've just said. I think it was uh, a, a pretty tight sort of set. It was it was good. I enjoyed it. I remember because my my parents were old school. And they grew up with the mm. Jackson Five cartoon and everything like that. So I I was kind of watching it this section of the concert. I was watching it sort of through them and seeing their reactions as it was happening. And I remember. At the end of, I can't remember what song it was, but all the brothers are standing there with their hands sort of just out. I think it was at the end of I Want You Back. They're all just standing there with their hands outstretched towards the audience, just frozen. Yeah. And my dad just, just jumped. He's, he's like, my dad is like, um, how, how do I explain? He's a, he's a pretty serious sort of guy, you know, working class fella. 
doesn't get excited about too much like this. But then when that happened, he just jumped out of his seat and was like, yeah, Aww. these guys are awesome. <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah. So my dad loving it was like, you know, that meant a lot to me that he loved it. And that, that made me love it even more. So it was... um. It was cool. You know, it was a really good set. I think, you know, Michael's vocals were, were good during it. Um, maybe not as great as what they had been um, before. But again, it was what it was the idea that he was there with his family again on stage with his mum watching in the audience after everything that he'd been through for the past 10 years. That sort of really hit home for me to see him back on stage, you know, a bit of a comeback, you know, getting back to it. So, yeah. Um, I thought it, it was a great set. I agree with the dancing machine stuff being it wasn't it hasn't aged well. It wasn't in my opinion necessary. I think they had so much tribute stuff before the Jackson set. Why continue it through? Like just just let the brothers be on stage doing their thing. Right. So that right. was yeah. I don't like watching that now really. Um and I'd also have started to wonder about what was meant to happen there? Was something else meant to be there other than NSYNC? Were they a last-minute inclusion? And it turns out that they were. Um, I did a little bit of digging before this show and I had a chat with Taj, Michael's nephew, and I noticed when I was looking at the poster for the show in preparation for the for this recording that 3T were listed on the bill as being performers in the show. And, of course, famously, they're, they're not in the show. So I gave Taj a phone call and had a chat with him about sort of what might have happened there. And he revealed to me that originally 3T were meant to be in the show either just before NSYNC with them or instead of them, perhaps during that section or doing something else a little bit differently. They had, see, they had a relationship with David Guest as well. He was pretty good friends with 3T guys and and Tito's family and david would stay at their house in in taj's room actually um off and on throughout his childhood taj of course got kicked out to another room to sleep with his brothers i think while david took his bedroom it seems like david guest and the jackson family were pretty close-knit my understanding is that david guest was actually friends with tito jackson before he was friends with any other jackson family members and through tito got to know michael etc this relationship made it such that 3T was either, yeah, going to perform with, with NSYNC or instead of them. David really wanted them to be in the show. But ultimately, 3T didn't really want to have any comparison to NSYNC, or that's the way Taj explains it. Um, and this was in the middle of their sort of their Sony battle where they were trying to, you know, escape from their record contract. And for years, they sort of felt captive from Sony and um, they decided in the end to try and to not be in the show to appear like, well, as Taj puts it, dead fish so that they could find it a little bit easier to get out of that contract with Sony. And Taj did explain to me that he and his brothers really did feel like it was a huge disappointment that another group was selected to perform with the Jacksons. In fact, they were so disheartened by the decision that they decided not to attend the shows because of it. Yeah, he also talked a little bit to me about how much his uncles were paid for the show as well and how little it was compared to a lot of other people in the show. And uh, the family in, in general afterwards felt a little bit ripped off, I think, considering you know the rehearsal time and how much they'd put into it. Apparently, Taj tells me that the media got it completely wrong about the family's cohesion before the shows as well and that they were a tight family unit rehearsing, wanting it to happen. 
And little interesting tidbits as well. Taj obviously putting together his documentary about the allegations dropped in there when we had a phone conversation that Wade Robson was there in the audience watching, primarily because I think he was photographing NSYNC and Britney Spears. It was super awkward for Brandy, who was also there, who, as we know, that there was a a complex relationship that existed between herself and Wade, mainly because of the decisions he made with Britney. So, of course, this was a very, very messy sort of oh, scenario. Right. right. What so, a mess. So total mess right there. With, with the- <laughs> <laughs> I can also say he was in the rehearsal footage at Madison Square Garden. He was mm, standing wow. on the side of the stage when Michael was rehearsing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So wow. some interesting tidbits there. Yeah, with the NSYNC thing, I thought it was – Obviously, at the time, I thought it was pretty cool that Michael was performing alongside a current band. But to be honest, I was only ever aware of Justin Timberlake. Mm. And we mentioned the the shovel routine that they did in um, Shake Your Body. Justin Timberlake actually recorded something in the BBC Live Lounge for Radio 1, and he performed Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, and they did that shovel routine. It's on YouTube. It's a really great clip. Yeah. But it would have been nice to – have 3T on a stage with their father and uncle. That would have been awesome. During that moment. Oh, absolutely. I think there was something as well. There was another little bit of controversy around Michael. Oh, that's right. I read that he missed the dress rehearsal the night before, or at least was very, very late to it because he last minute agreed to go to the MTV VMA Awards to appear in the NSYNC section. That was and, it, yeah. And he didn't tell David Guest that he was going to do that. So David was expecting him to come to dress rehearsals, but he was over at the uh, the uh, MTV Awards. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I remember that because we were on the red carpet trying to see people. And uh, we waited all that time to see celebrities. We only got to see Puff Daddy. And then we found out Michael was in there. We was like, oh, my God. How do we-? <laughs> we just wish we could have been at whatever entrance that he came in because I would have given up Puff Daddy. Wasn't the story actually in that David Guest told, wasn't it that NSYNC threatened to pull out of yeah. the Madison Square Garden shows unless Michael returned the favor by going and performing with them at the VMAs? Yeah. And interestingly, uh, probably a, 18 months ago or something, I was on the phone to a guy called Rudy Provencio, who was part of Michael's camp and entourage around the the Invincible era. He was sent by Sony to try to get Michael over the finish line on the album and ended up becoming part of Michael's inner circle, ultimately ended up testifying at his trial in 2005. And he told me a story about being backstage at the VMAs with Michael when he was about to go on that night. And he just said he was he was sort of observing Michael as he was standing backstage preparing to go on stage and he just looked so depressed and somebody came over and said to him, Mr. Jackson, they're ready for you and he just let out this long sigh, like oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And that I mean that was basically the totality of the story, but it's an interesting little insight into what was going on in those days. Yeah. I'm not sure about you guys. I really didn't enjoy seeing that that Michael going out with NSYNC. I mean, if we're going to criticize the Jacksons for being a little bit wishy-washy with their, hey, do you want to hear this song now? Yeah. 
Yeah. NSYNC performing pop and having the king of pop come out. That's just as cheesy and corny as anything the Jacksons did. <laughs> and also, it's a terrible... It's, it's rubbish, isn't it? Michael looks like he's got like glue on the bottom of his shoe or something. He can't get any movement going. It, it totally took away from, from what they were doing and act, the actual song. So if, mm. if they needed to have it, someone out there, like I said, it, you know, it would have been nice to bring 3T out with their dad and their uncles. But you know, they didn't need anyone. Let the brothers do the thing. Exactly. Mm, 100%. Yeah, it's another thing that hasn't aged very well. And um, let's now get into Michael's solo set. So the Jacksons finish off their set. Great, great stuff. They leave the stage with one of the brothers slapping the other brother on the butt and then <laughs> they walk off. I remember laughing about that at the time. And um, they uh, and then Chris Tucker comes out. Now, I was so excited about this because I remember uh, being a huge fan of the Rush Hour series. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this time, I love Rush Hour. I still watch them now. I think that some of the best buddy cop movies of all time and um and so when chris did his comedy routine of saying michael had told him on the phone that he'd seen the movie rush hour and he was kicking with the wrong leg and all of that it was just such a great a great tone to set for the next um <laughs> portion of the show it was just funny and again getting people really excited and 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 chris was really one of the biggest comedy stars of the time yeah. at, you know mm-hmm. um in 2001 so i was a huge chris tucker fan during this time period mm-hmm. huge chris i still love chris tucker and i remember taking my he was on a cover of gq magazine and i said i'm taking this chris tucker magazine he's going to sign this before the end of the night he's going to sign this of course it never happened but it all came full circle a couple weeks ago because i got to meet him at thriller night in oh. Havenhurst. and oh. i got to tell him i've been wanting to meet you since the Madison Square Garden concert. <laughs> and he was so fun and so nice. And he even recorded a message and said my mom's name and, and gave a message oh. to my mom. Very nice guy. And I just want to make sure I just snuck that in there because he's so down to earth and he was such a fun person. But that night, going back in time, I wanted to meet him so, so bad. But I will tell you, it was worth all those years of the wait, it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. He seems like such a great guy. And Vinay, all these stories you've got, I'm telling you, we're going to have to do another show together just to hear all your stories in one spot. Oh, anytime. <laughs> anytime. But, uh, yeah, so Chris comes out, does his comedy routine, and then Michael hits the stage with The Way You Make Me Feel. And uh, I think um, I might kick this one off a little bit, guys. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, at the time, it was, you know, again, pretty mind-blowing for me because I'd never seen any Michael Jackson. I do have to preface it by saying it's, you know, it's lip-synced, so it's not um, Michael singing live, unfortunately. I wish it was, but it's not. I absolutely love costume tweaks that he, that he had for this performance. I, love, I don't know. I still don't really know what material that blue shirt is that he's wearing, but it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it just looks really cool when, when the light's hitting it. It's not like any other shirt he'd kind of worn before. His dancing was really, really on point for most of this song, uh, especially that opening section where he's standing on that black box that gets dragged away and, and sort of steps down off that. He's really just, yeah, pulling those classic, classic MJ dance moves out and it's it's really great. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of funny things going on with the song though. First of all, the pitch of the lip synced vocals sounds a lot deeper 
than other times they had used the record vocals. So I don't know why they decided to intentionally pitch that down, maybe to try and trick people to think it was live. I don't really know what was going on there. Again, they got me. They got, they got you, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, like we said kind of before, I wish it had that dance break at the end um, like he did with Britney Spears later on. But, yeah, I thought it was a really, uh, a really good performance. It totally sold me as a young 15-year-old kid. Instant MJ mega fan. Yeah, I like that too. I like that. Um, the way you make me feel, that performance doesn't stand out too much to me. I mean, the Britney Spears one did, but um, it's it's never been on the top of my favorite songs list. So I think I just was kind of, I just wanted him to, I liked the part where he was on the ground and, and doing the moves. But mm-hmm. yeah, I still, like I said, I still prefer the Britney version. I, I guess it was maybe her presence too. And she looked so cute. <laughs> Uh, I always like the beginning of the live version, you know, that slow, jazzy. Oh, yeah. I love it. And and I guess at this point in my fandom, you know, I had seen Michael do all the dance moves. I just want to hear Michael sing. And so I always wanted Michael to just continue that through the entire song. Just keep it slow. Keep that jazzy. That would have been I've I've always longed for that. I did not need any of the dance moves. I didn't need any of it. I didn't need it to be sped up. I just needed him to continue that through the entire song. And so even back then, I wanted that to continue. And I think he previewed that at the Grammys because uh, he did that also during yeah. the uh, uh, the Bad Tour. So I, I always, that to me was always one of my favorite parts of that song. And I just wish he would have extended it. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt that way, including Michael Bearden, who was, a, I think, a keyboard player during this concert and then ended up becoming the This Is It musical director. And remember in This Is It how Michael Jackson's doing a real slow, jazzy kind of thing and then Michael Bearden's like, let's weave that in there. Let's get the song like that. And Michael's like, no, I want it exactly like the record. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm with you, though. I'm with you, though. I think I think if he mixed it up a little bit and did something a little bit slower, and that would have been cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think Sean hit the nail on the head, really. This is a routine from 1988 at the Grammys, and that's sort of a pattern that emerges as the concert continues, which is essentially Michael coming out and lip-syncing to old vocals and performing very old routines that probably required minimum rehearsal. And he was able to just kind of coast through on muscle memory i think the only the thing that's kind of amusing to watch is the britney version where i don't know what had happened where i'm i know that he did do some rehearsal with britney because i've seen it but she appeared not to know anything about where she was supposed to be going on stage at any point so if you watch the performance carefully Michael just has to keep pointing. He has to keep pointing where she's supposed to be, and then she wanders up, and then he has to follow her down and point where she's supposed to go again. So it's kind of like a a bit of a debacle, really, the the Britney version. But, yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately it's sort of like who cares? You know, it's just Michael lip-syncing to a 15-year-old routine. I agree. It would have been better if he'd done something different with it, and it would have been better if he'd sung it live. And I would have totally preferred it if he'd sat on a stool and sung it than if he was running all over the stage lip-syncing it, you know? Yes. So, (laughs) um, yeah, it's kind of a a missed opportunity. 
there's a little anecdote in Frank Cassio's book that talks about Britney Spears um, being absolutely just anxious. Like she was apparently panicking backstage before the concert and um, was really worried about not being able to uh, live up to Michael's greatness uh, on stage with him. So all she had to do was walk. Yeah, <laughs> the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you're standing next to Michael Jackson, someone you've idolized for that long, and all you have it. to do is I walk, you can freeze if you want. Listen, I wouldn't have been able to do it, so I understand. Yeah, yeah. But but speaking on the way you make me feel in, in terms of the song itself and the performance itself, loved it. Again, the first time I'd seen it performed live, that slowed down section at the start was fantastic. The dancing behind the curtain, iconic Michael Jackson poses. And again, my naivety, I was convinced it was all sung live but clearly it wasn't. I think the parts at the end were, and the the dancing was minimal at the end. But again, I hadn't been aware of the full routine up to that point. Uh, I was only 16 years old and, and, and just really starting to get into the heavy fandom. But yeah, I, I loved it as an opener. And yeah, the, the uh, one thing I couldn't work out is when they threw from Chris Tucker to the performance, how that curtain just magically appeared. <laughs> 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 there's a, there's a lot of that going on. There's magical uh, appearing and disappearing microphones during Billy Jean. Yes, um, <laughs> cutting From between his those hand two as well. Is, is, uh, <laughs> yeah, always going to be a challenge. <laughs> All right. So the way you make me feel, great. Got things started off really well. I remember there was an interlude straight after that um, that was all about Michael's dancing. Uh, you know, you've got the narrator talking about. Michael being inspired by Fred Astaire and James Brown and there's all this footage from him as a kid dancing all the way through to Smooth Criminal and just really, 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 really well edited interlude that totally just made me wide-eyed on that living room floor thinking, who is this incredible god of entertainment that I'm watching? Beat It came on straight after that and notable difference to any other Beat It performance that had happened before was Michael was not in a red jacket which right. was a big deal because Beat It kind of equals red jacket for coolness anyway. And I thought it was cool, like a cool little change up to the costuming. I thought the black jacket was really cool. It made him, you know, look a little bit older, a little bit more modern. And the strings behind it, I remember listening to that and thinking, wow, that sounds completely just another level with all that orchestration going on behind the music. A lot more dancers on stage than in, in other Beat It productions where he might have only had sort of four or five, six dancers on stage. In this one, he had like, I don't know how many, like 20-something behind him, which looked just phenomenal. Yeah, it was it was really good. The theatrics with the, you know, the fight. I think it might have been the first time. I can't remember. But in other Michael Jackson performances of Beat It, from memory... Nobody dies in the theatrical <laughs> part. Like in this one, it's like, okay, Michael just got real because one of the one of the gang members just like actually died and gets carried off stage. So um <laughs> but uh yeah, it was it was really great. I, I loved it again. The the I think Charlie, you're right. I think in this one, it must have been from that first night because you could totally see now when you watch it, especially in the Japanese um, high-definition version that's on YouTube, when you look at his lip, like it sums up, like it's red and kind of inflamed and sort of puffy. And second night, it's not like that. So something was going on there, particularly in this number, you can notice it. But great song. Absolutely. And I think we mentioned earlier that when people try to imitate Michael Jackson and do Michael Jackson's songs, it's never going to be 
right. It can be good, but most of them miss the mark. Beat It, I have to say, is one of the, the few Michael Jackson cover songs that I've heard uh, by Fallout Boy, which I actually really enjoyed. And I think part of that was because of this performance at the 30th anniversary, where it was a sort of heavier, not not quite mm-hmm. grungier, but it was a heavier, a more meatier version of the song. And I really enjoyed that the first time I saw it, to the point where I even thought that Michael should re-record it with that sort of heavy uh, guitar. But then you can't really take away from the iconic performance of Eddie Van Halen on the original. Yeah. Um, but for me, I have to say, of the entire live performance, it's probably Beat It was my favorite of the live performances in that show. Hmm. Beat It was okay. That's the one where I noticed the hand over the mouth a lot. So that that was kind of... And I, I remember noticing... I do remember noticing that in person. It wasn't a big deal, like I said, I just assume he doesn't know the lyrics to beat it because I still can't get the lyrics to beat it. But <laughs> um, that nothing else about it like really stands out for me for that performance, good or bad. It's just beat it to me, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It's beat it's a, a controversial one with fans. I find you either love it or it's kind of like, yeah, beat it's beat it. <laughs> I love it when it's really, really, really loud. I know, that yeah. sounds so bizarre, but like if it's live or if it's at a party, yeah, it's one of those songs that has to be loud. But I, I mean, I was probably screaming the whole time anyway, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's not the kind of song that you just listen to in an elevator, no. is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you know, it was it was typical, typical beat it performance. I actually like the theatrical part at the end where the, the gang member dies. Uh, I thought that was a, a different touch to the performance, but it, it didn't stand out other than that part from any other uh, beat it performance Michael has done in the past. So again, I, I kind of want to echo what Charlie was saying earlier that, you know, with some of this, some of these songs, you would like to see him do something a little bit different. So it was just typical Michael doing his beat it performance live. Yeah. Well, I think Jamin kind of, inadvertently hit the nail on the head he said a sentence which kind of uh, perfectly encapsulated everything that was wrong with this show and with michael's performing career generally by this point jamin's words were michael was not in a red jacket which was a big deal now that's yes. fans. you know what i mean there's like you know it, it reminds me of when fans say oh no the history concerts aren't all the same because in gelson kirschen he did the charlie chaplin walk in smooth criminal or something you know it's like yeah that's the well if that's the one thing you can point to that was different about one show then you're kind of demonstrating the problem you know Michael was not in a red jacket, which makes this a notable performance. I mean, basically, if you've seen one Beat It performance from the Victory Tour, then you've seen every Beat It performance Michael ever gave in his entire career, which is a shame. It's just Michael miming to Beat It for like the 300th time in 20 (laughs) years and doing the same dance routine. You know, so (laughs) it's just hard to get excited about it. I mean, he does perform the dance routine very well, but you would expect him to, given the number of times he's performed it by that point in his career. I'd I'd temper that just by saying again, as you mentioned earlier, this is before the time of YouTube where people could go back and look at past performances pretty easily. And so there were, would be people, you know, like myself and and Jamin to a certain extent where they're coming across this performance for the first time. So if it is different, they're not getting that iconic performance. And that's, that's a great point because I have to remember that myself having been a fan uh, since the seventies. By this point I had seen it 
like like Charlie said, like for the three hundredth time. And so for me, I want something different. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm craving something different. Um, but for new fans at that point, you know, you're right. You were seeing it for the first time, and you were mesmerized uh, by it for the first time. So I have to keep that in the back of my head. Mm. You know, when I when we discuss this, it's a kind of a crazy argument, though, because it's a bit like saying that an author should just write the same book over and over again in case people haven't read their first book. You know, it's worked for J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> if people, you know, have never seen a Michael Jackson concert before, they can't. They have no right to expect that he's going to do the same thing every single time he performs in case mm. they haven't bothered to go for the last 30 years. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it also is not just for the fans, but it's for Michael. You know, as I say, it's, it's not fun to watch somebody performing who looks like it's not fun for them. Yeah. And that's kind of what it felt like for Michael pretty much from the dangerous tour onwards. It was like more and more of the show was being lip synced. It was basically being copied and pasted from the last tour. I mean, even if you start with the victory tour, every tour Michael embarks on is basically largely copied and pasted from the tour, which preceded it. I think that that is largely to blame for Michael kind of checking out and then also getting into this phase of not wanting to perform and repeatedly signing contracts to perform and then welshing on them so you have hbo the one night only thing which he cancels for medical reasons and is supposed to reschedule and never does and then you have the uh millennium concerts with marcel avram where he signs the contract and then never shows up and ends up getting sued then you have these concerts where of course on the night when he's supposed to be there he calls up a doctor and gets injected with something and almost misses the show and basically turns up incapable of executing it properly. So it's as much for Michael's benefit. You know, if he, if he was doing something that challenged and excited him, then he might have been more G'd up and ready to perform, and we might have been getting more from him and more enthusiastic mm -hmm. rather than kind of, oh, let me just put the red jacket on and do this shit one more time then. Uh, oh, Charlie, right. I completely agree. I think 100% right. with what you're saying, um, my point, I guess, was that it's taken the YouTube era to come along where you can watch those historical performances for that point to become apparent, to me anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly didn't get the sense of that when I was watching it. And, and like, like Vinay is saying, you know, seeing it for the first time, you know, I was in front of a TV screen, you were actually there um, as a young fan. None of that, none of that was apparent to me at all. I had no concept of that. All I saw was this magic happening on stage. Yeah. And I was, right. I was sure fooled by the, the propaganda of it all, whatever the lip syncing, absolutely. But I'll go back to the point that I think, you know, through Michael's struggles and clearly not as great a show as he had done before, the magic still shone through and was able to make millions of people fans. So, yeah, I do agree with your point as well, though, Charlie. Um, speaking of completely out-of-place jackets, let's talk about black or white. <laughs> <laughs> so in this version of black or white, we've got Michael wearing the Billy Jean jacket which is just weird. And <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I think maybe that was a problem in the edit. Like I think the, I think in the actual concerts, 
Black or White must have happened directly after Billie Jean, but the way they edited it was so that Black or White happened beforehand in the televised version. It drives me crazy. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> it's weird. Like, why would he be wearing that jacket and then come out minutes later and take it out of a suitcase? It just makes no sense. <laughs> Yeah, and it um, took away the magic of the moment yeah. when they when edited it that way. Yeah, yeah. And and sort of the way you guys are talking a little bit about Beat It not being overly exciting, I really felt that way about Black or White. If I was to pick any of the songs in the solo set, I would say this would be the one that I would have dropped. I think probably the way that Michael went into it thinking with David Guest was let's choose like what are the five, four or five biggest bangers of my career, like number one hits. And I'd say they probably maybe got it right. Like the way you make me feel beat it, Black or White and Billie Jean are probably his four most upbeat number one hits, you know, like in terms of danceability and just excitement levels. So like I think they probably chose well in that regard, but I don't know. I think there there would have been a chance there for him to swap Black or White out for something a little bit more, something that maybe wasn't a number one hit or something that was like, even like human nature or something like that it would have been cool for like i would have loved that that would have been awesome yeah maybe like just a, a slightly different tone there to be something just to put a light on his vocals but but um yeah so this is one that was a bit of a miss for me um it was it was okay but uh, I, I i have to preface this by saying that black or white is one of the my least favorite uh michael solo songs and i'll take a lot i take a lot of heat when i say this online it, it's just not you know i i, I it's not one of my favorite songs, and I agree with you. Uh, he could have swapped this out with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough or Rock yeah. With You, something from Off the Wall. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm always underwhelmed by black or white, and so uh, this performance didn't change that. Now, I, I normally do love black or white, but, you know, it was to me just kind of the same. Nothing stood out for me for that particular performance, but I am a fan of that particular song. But this one was just kind of how I feel about Beat It. It was just kind of routine for me. Interesting. See, I think I'm on the other end of the spectrum again because my first conscious memory of anything to do with Michael Jackson is the song Black or White. Uh, and I remember them playing it on one of my first days of, of primary school as well when I was young. In fact, one of my biggest performance, my dad was in the Air Force and I remember he'd been away for a couple of months and so we were going to RF Bryce Norton to pick him up. And this was playing over the radio and over the loudspeaker at RAF Bryce Norton to the point where it distracted my mum so much she went over a speed bump a little bit too hard. And I think we nearly did an air-to-air and picked Dad up from the plane. (laughs) (laughs) But that aside, Black or White has always been one of my favourite Michael Jackson songs, although I have to agree that this isn't a particularly strong performance of it necessarily. Um, I was pretty happy to see it because it was the first time I'd seen it performed live. Yeah. And I do want to add, like I said earlier, I just want to reiterate my point. None of this stuff mattered when I was there. This is all my afterthoughts. Yeah. Watching it, you know, again, that night, every song to me was magic. And I just want to make sure I keep bringing that point home because I sound like I'm criticizing it now. But it was, like I said before, spectacular when I was there. So I just want to make sure that you understand that all my criticisms is coming from long after <laughs> the event. Of course, of course. And and that's the thing with the MJ cast. We try to have a real look at Michael's career. And every one of us here knows that Michael was the greatest entertainer. Like, And Absolutely. he had decades of incredible, brilliant performances and tours. Right. And, you know, like who can fold the bad tour? Come on. But mm-hmm. we're talking about exactly. this as like, 
a problematic show really that that had a lot of behind the scenes things going on that resulted in some you know it not being his finest hour but charlie what do you reckon black or white I'm kind of team Sean because I've never really liked Black or White as a song. Sam Habib, actually, friend of the show and co-founder of the MJ Academia Project, once described Black or White to me as a song which sounded like it had been made by Focus Group, yeah. <laughs> which kind of took completely. I was like, yeah, you're right. It does. You know, it's like, oh, well, we'll put something in for people that like rock music and then we'll put something Mm -hmm. in for people Mm -hmm. that like rap, (laughs) but all done in a kind of a haphazard way. So you end up with a rap that's never going to appeal to anybody who likes rap because it's just been recorded by some studio engineer or something and it's pretty lame and and slash is on the track you know the original track but his guitar in the mix is turned like way down i went to a brad sunberg seminar where he played black or white with slash's guitar turned up in the mix and it's a completely different song anyway what can you say about this performance i mean it's literally michael walking up and down the stage while a pre-recorded black or white vocal plays over the sound system. And that's it. I mean, that really is it. So what, what can you say? I mean, his eyes are closed for a lot of it. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it really is like the definition of phoning it in at that point in the show, you know, it's just, there's just nothing going on. Billy Jean. Okay, so this this one was the moment where I absolutely just went, okay, this guy's on a whole other level. And I understand the vocals are also not live, but yeah, this is the one that totally just turned me into an instant mega fan for sure. But I want to hear from you guys first. So Billy Jean for me is always the song that I am waiting for Michael to perform. I watch it all the time on history concerts, on his band concerts. So I love Billie Jean. So it's hard to go wrong for me and Billie Jean. But what I will say about this performance is that I felt like it was cut a little short as opposed to some of his other Billie Jean performances where they seem to stretch out towards the end with um, those long dance segments and um, the breakdown of the music. So I, I felt like Billie Jean, for whatever reason, was cut short which I didn't understand because that's kind of the one song everybody's really waiting to see him perform. I'm going to say something slightly controversial. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get so (laughs) abused on Twitter, but I don't believe that Michael in his entire career ever gave a great performance of Billie Jean. I think he gave great dance performances of Billie Jean but or I can't think of a performance of Billie Jean ever that the vocal was good on. I just can't think of one. I think at Madison Square Garden 2001, this is the performance which best demonstrates the, the editing, the way this sh- show was very, very cleverly and slightly manipulatively edited. So what they do in the show is the the vocal clearly is lip synced, but in the mix it's turned down 
and the crowd noise is turned way up. And this performance is filled with audience reactions. I think, to me, it appears to have been done to try to disguise the lip syncing that's going on. What you had on the nights when you look at the two fan cam recordings are two very different performances of Billie Jean. The first night, Michael was absolutely on his ass and he actually couldn't execute the moonwalk. If you watch the amateur footage, the fan cam footage, he manages two or three steps of the moonwalk at the crucial point in the song and his legs give out. He can't go any further. By the second night, he was much stronger. Second night's dance performance was much better. The editing, whilst I I can see the way that they've edited the performance to try to make it appear more live and so on, I've always been flummoxed by the editing of the um, the dance breakdown at the end because they've just used all the worst bits of both nights essentially or all it is mm-hmm. it's just rubbish you know you've got obviously the the clumsy editing where the microphone is in his hand and then it disappears and then it comes back again where they've stitched it together from two nights but on the second night he moonwalked on the spot and did a long moonwalk in the um the dance breakdown at the end why did they not use that? God knows. He also I'm, beatboxes. Yeah, it's it's just such a better performance the second night. And what they actually included was that even when you look at the footage that they included from the first night, he did some interesting stuff that first night. He did a bit of like um, old-fashioned like pop-lock type stuff, and and they just cut away from it to like crazy people in the audience waving Liverpool scarves or something. And you're just going, why would you I know do the that? guy. Yeah. I know the guy you're talking like, why about. You so then when they cut, so they cut away from Michael when he's doing interesting dance moves, but then they cut back when he's sort of dithering about looking like he can't think of anything to do. And it's just such a pig's ear, the edit of that dance section at the end. I don't know what they were doing. They should have just taken the dance section from the end of the second night and used that. It's just bizarre, just completely bizarre. I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe the cameraman did something wrong and they missed it all or something, so they had to use the first night. I don't know what was going on in that edit suite because the second night was so much better and they just barely used any of it. Very, very strange. Wow. Uh, this is going to be the typical Michael Jackson, Billie Jean performance. Uh, this is the song every artist has, you know, your most popular song. You're going to perform it the same way every time. And so I didn't have as much of an issue with it other than, you know, I prefer to hear Michael sing. And so when I don't hear Michael sing, that's always a disappointment. But, you know, to Vernay's point, watching it that night, I absolutely loved it. And and so it's always uh, always good to see him you know, performing Billie Jean, you know, that, that, the, that routine uh, in that way. So uh, my only, the only drawback was, again, he was not singing you know, the actual vocals. I'm conflicted on this one because I'm in total agreement with Vinay that it, it's always a song that I look forward to. And I, I would argue, in my personal opinion anyway, that Billie Jean is possibly one of the best songs ever written. And the, the live performances of it are, are always a highlight for me because it contains the moonwalk, of course. 
So I really enjoyed it from the point of view of this is an up-to-date version of Michael doing the moonwalk. The moonwalk looks pretty good. It looks pretty smooth when he's doing it. But I don't particularly like slow versions of Billie Jean. Now, I like the upbeat where it's moving, where it makes you want to move. This And the history tour as well. It's For me, it's a slower version of Billie Jean that I don't particularly like. I still like the song, don't get me wrong. I still make the argument that it's the greatest song ever written. But it's for me, Billie Jean has always been a song that's supposed to make you get up and dance like Michael Jackson. And to that point, you want it to be a relatively fast pace. But then you also have to temper that by going, well, Michael's, what, 43 years of age at the point of this show, so can he really keep up with that? Yeah, so that's why I'm conflicted. It's it's definitely one of my favourite songs of his to watch, but I didn't massively enjoy that performance, other than the moonwalks. Right. So for me, this totally sold me and sent me into the stratosphere as mega fan for life, this song. And and I, I own it. It's lip-synced. I get it. It's not perfect. But again, 15-year-old me didn't know any of that. I I thought it was live singing. I thought it was all real. Mm. But the the theatrics of it, the the absolutely iconic costume, the clicking his fingers and the light comes love on the it. stage. Love it. Oh, I love that <laughs> bit. Incredible theatrics going yeah. on. And then once you get, yeah. you know, the thing that sold me really was the dance sequence. Even though it was all from the first night, there's still some killer moves going on in there. Like that side glide he does is mm-hmm. I will stand by the fact mm-hmm. that's the best that of that particular move. That's the best time he ever did it in his career. Yeah. He's just like floating across that stage. I think that's that is really really good. And I don't know, just for me, it just totally sent me in, into mega fandom forever. I can't explain why. I know it's got its massive faults compared to other Billie Jean performances from the 80s. I think I was the same as you at the time in that it it was, for me, it was mesmerizing. Mm. But I think uh, the other thing was that recently before that performance, I'd only recently got the first Michael Jackson DVDs where I'd seen the Motown performance for the first time. So I recognized what was coming up in terms of the routine. Yeah. But because it was a slower version and a more, what do you say, dated version, version of the performance i didn't quite enjoy it as much but at the time i still thought it was mesmerizing i still thought this guy was magic you know right yeah see i'd never had that i'd never seen the motown 25 performance i'd never seen any other billy jean this was my first exposure to billy jean i didn't even have a an idea of what a billy jean performance should look like oh wow this was it like the first time ever seeing it so it was that's awesome though wow and and to me i spent years trying to track down footage of this like i because like you guys said earlier there was no youtube i had to find it on a vhs tape as well unlike charlie i didn't know there were fan sites you could buy uh, michael videos from so i knew this one guy on the other side of my city and he he caught like a train for like two hours to deliver me this VHS. Tape. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I think it was. I don't know how many years. One or two years later, after it aired, but I finally got my hands on it again. There was a whole period of time after it aired that I was desperate to watch it again because I didn't videotape right when it was on. It was uh, that really sold me that performance big time. And that's the beauty of that performance. Even going back to Motown 25, it stayed the same. And the point of it is even 20, 30 years later, when he, when he's performing it, it'll hook you. It'll hook new mm-hmm. fans. Uh, it'll, it'll capture old fans like myself and say, you know what? This is, this is why I love Michael Jackson. So that again, that's the beauty of Billie Jean. And 
the same performance that Michael gave year after year when he when he sang yeah. the song or when he performed the song. There is a flip side to that though, which is, you know, we know from multiple interviews that Michael gave that he was sick of performing it that way. Yeah. You know, which kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier. He gave at least two interviews over the years where he said, My favorite song to perform is Billy Jean but when I get to perform it the way I want to perform it rather than the way that the fans want me to perform it. So I wish that he would have just thrown off those chains and done something that was going to engage and excite him rather than putting himself through the misery of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, because he thought that the fans would be upset if he didn't. It was kind of like a, a trap yeah. that he set for himself by making that first performance so iconic was that he couldn't escape it. But I will tell you though, as a, a fan again from the seventies, I wish if, if there was one thing I could tell Michael, I would have told him, listen, I don't ever need to see you dance again. I just want to see you stand in front of a microphone and just sing. And Charlie, you said it earlier, just sit on a, 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 a stool and sing. That's what I really, I, I was always wanting to have that uh, from Michael. Uh, and unfortunately, we'll never get it. But I, I think he needed to understand that he had fans out there who only wanted to see his presence and to hear his voice. And we didn't need all of the theatrics. We didn't need the dancing. I just yeah. wanted to see him. I just wanted to hear him. Actually, that's an interesting point also that David Guest makes either in his book or in the documentary. He talks about his sort of growing irritation with Michael coming up with all these crazy, huge spectacles that he wanted to be happening in this show, which might be part of why he got cheesed off with David Guest and was trying to bring Suzanne de Pass back. But David Guest, he says, e either in the film or in the book, that basically Michael was coming up with all these crazy theatrical ideas, which would have completely blown the budget. You know, so it, it was almost like Michael was, as we saw with the history tour and as we would see with This Is It and so on, kind of almost trying to create a spectacle other than himself. Like he was worried that he couldn't live up to right. the hype anymore. And David Guest was the one that reined him in and said, no, we're not spending the money that's going to be required to do all that stuff. And you're going to have to bring it back to basics. It's almost weird in a way that you're looking at this show and this is this is the Michael Jackson version of being back to basics right. <laughs> compared to any other artist. Right. Yeah, all really good points. All right, so Billie Jean happens and then it's time for a brand new performance of a Michael Jackson single, his first single from Invincible, You Rock My World. This was uh, in the lead up to this song when the dancers are sitting on the stairs listening on their Sony Discman or whatever it is to this uh, <laughs> instrumental and they're like, oh, new Michael Jackson song. I was like, I was, you know, in a state of high anticipation yeah. here because all of that, footage that they'd shown in the interludes with Michael in front of crowds of, you know, thousands of people, you're thinking, you know, what is going to be next from this guy? Every album he's ever released has been huge. This next single has got to be incredible. And so uh, <laughs> then You Rock My World starts and it is a decent song. I really like it. It's, uh, you know, one of my one of my favorite Michael Jackson upbeat songs. I've got nothing against the song at all. But uh, I think 
I don't know. I don't, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I think it's a pretty safe bet here to say that the, the debut of this song was not up to the same standards when Michael had debuted other upbeat singles from albums. I'm thinking like Bad, Black or White, Scream, that kind of thing. Anytime you had seen a new major single from a new Michael Jackson album, it was a really big event, like a major world event that people would tune in to watch. And this this was not that. You know, Michael had the black jacket back on that he had already been wearing for Beat It. His vocals, again, were lip-synced. The song was decent. The choreography seemed to be thrown together pretty last minute. In fact, I think I read a story that it was. His dancing had nothing to do with what the dancers were doing behind him. It was a pretty disconnected sort of performance. There was some recycled sort of old moves from um, Smooth Criminal in there at the end. Uh, I think he was doing the uh, Fred Astaire bandwagon sort of walk that happens in that towards the end. Mm -hmm. The live vocals at the end of it, when they kick in, are actually fairly okay, I thought. But the performance itself just yeah left me, even even 15-year-old me, which was really excited for Michael Jackson, I remember being way more excited for all the songs that had come before it than You Rock My World. Yeah, it, it really fell flat for me as well. It's just not a song that you perform live um, in that setting. Uh, and so I, I agree with you uh, that it just didn't go over well. It wasn't a good performance at all. I think it's sort of, in a way, it, it depends on your outlook. I mean, we've got nothing to compare it to when it comes to live performances of You Rock My World. So you could turn around and say it's the best performance of that song he ever did. <laughs> but, um, That's true. That is very true. Point well taken. You could also turn it around and say it's the worst performance he's ever did. But look, I, I think, yeah, that that intro where they're standing on the stairs, where they're discman or walkman or whatever it is, I've seen lumps of cheddar that were less cheesy than that. that was, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. Mm, that Michael's was, yeah. new song. Mm, Do you guys that's want to hear nice. It? Yeah, that, that's the bit that got me. The one going, yeah, that's nice. Oh my god. <laughs> But, yeah, then they walk out onto the stage and, and, again, there's that level of excitement that this is a new Michael Jackson song. And I had obviously previously heard it. I think I'm right in saying by the time I watched – well, yeah, absolutely. By the time I watched that special, the single had been released and I already had it. So I knew the song. And, it's, again, I'm conflicted in that I enjoyed the performance, but then as as history is, has gone on, you look back at it and you go, there's something not quite right here. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, again, it's in hindsight, I can see, you know, some of the issues with it. I think, didn't, isn't that the song where him and Usher like bumped into each other? Yeah, yeah. they there was a dance-off thing. Yeah. That was actually pretty pretty funny and comedic, I thought. Yeah, I liked, I liked them. I, I liked them. Uh, I seem like Michael, I don't know, maybe wasn't aware of his space at the time, but yeah. <laughs> I thought the whole thing was was fun because, you know, I already told you how I felt about Chris Tucker and it was, all, it's always cool to see Usher come out and do his Michael. So um, I, I don't think I really paid that much attention to the girls on the steps. I was probably just like, get them out the way, <laughs> you know, but, um, and I, I think I had already had the anticipation that Chris Tucker was coming. So it wasn't horrible to me. I thought it was a fun performance. Yeah, it is a kind of a hard song to, to perform live, though. It doesn't have that same oomph as some of his other songs. Mm. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about it either way. It kind of didn't move me and it didn't unmove me. I'm just kind of in the middle with it. But I like the the people that came on with them. Yeah. It's, all, it's also a really odd vo song vocally to sing live, I think, because the, from memory, the chorus, he's not actually singing the chorus on stage. He's just ad-libbing over the whole chorus 
every time there's a mm-hmm. chorus. So it's just an odd thing. The only vocals you're hearing that are meant to be him singing are those mimed ad-libs until the end of the song, of course, when the live vocals kick in. But yeah, definitely the Chris Tucker and Usher thing at the end was – I quite liked that, to be well, honest. when Chris literally kicks with the wrong leg and then Michael <laughs> falls over <laughs> laughing on the stage, that, <laughs> that was a really funny, you know, human moment that, that was great. But um, Yeah, that was sweet. Well, there are two very different You Rock My World performances. Mm-hmm. You know, the first night there were no girls on the step and there was no Usher or Chris Tucker. And what actually happened on the first night was Michael stood on the stage after whatever the last song was, I forget what order they actually went in on the night, and said to the audience, what song do you want Mm -hmm. to hear next? And got an emphatic response from the crowd that they wanted to hear You Rock My World. And he reacted with some surprise and said already or something like that because it had leaked hadn't it at the time it had leaked and it had been leaked by sony because he and sony were in a disagreement about what the first single should be from invincible Mm. he wanted it to be unbreakable and he had a whole video concept for unbreakable and sony was not prepared to pay for that video so they leaked you rock my world and then said oh well this is going to have to be the first single because it's leaked already So, and Michael was locked already in a big row with Sony and there was a big dispute over the fact that Sony failed to buy a single advertising space during the TV broadcast of the concert to promote Invincible. That was a whole separate row that they ended up having. But anyway, so the first night Michael performs You Rock My World and when you watch the fan cam footage that is absolutely heartbreaking is is shockingly bad he tries to perform a move from the uh, remember the time video and he can't do it he just can't execute it he hasn't got the coordination and then he tries to do a 180 degree spin and almost falls over and he spends the whole performance hunched double with his hand covering his face. And then when it gets to the bridge, he stops the song and he never finishes it. And he is in such a state at that point. I mean, he literally looks like he's going to collapse at any moment. The second night, as with the second night generally, is much, much better. Albeit his vocals, when he's ad-libbing over the verses, are very flat. They're out there off key. And he doesn't really hit his vocal stride until he's sort of shout singing the ad libs after the bridge. Yeah, I mean, there's again, it's you've covered it already. It's not an amazing. It's a great song. I think "You're on My World" is the last great Michael Jackson dance song. Mm. But the performance seemed to have been cobbled together at the last minute. It's clear that on night one, there's no intention to perform that song. I don't know what he was supposed to be performing instead. But he sort of had to introduce You Rock My World into the show because the audience had demanded it. It was almost like a stunt that backfired. Maybe he was expecting them all to say something else, Thriller or something. And so they cobbled together this performance in two days with the girls on the steps and then Usher coming out at the end and so on. So it's, it's kind of a last minute addition to the set list and to the show, which is why it all feels a bit kind of, you know that will do i think he's dancing at the end of the second night where he's involved in the in the dance off with usher 
he dances Usher off the stage. You know, that's my that's a flash of Michael Jackson greatness right there. <laughs> right. You can't even see, you forget Usher's even there. And he stood right next to him, you know. But that first night, You Rock My World was just devastating. And wasn't there something else that happened, another performance that was never televised? Was it We Are The World, where Quincy Jones and everybody's back on stage? Yes, yes. That, yeah, that's yeah. what I mentioned earlier, where Michael came, that was at the end of the first night, Michael came on in a silver jacket. And I mean, he looked more stoned than he had all, he had looked the whole night. He just looked like a zombie, like he literally barely knew where he was. And then when We Are The World finished, they started playing You Rock My World again. And Michael started sort of uh. ad-libbing You Rock My World and again, completely off key. It's like he has no self-awareness in that, in that final bit of that concert is like he's on another planet. It's the footage is on YouTube. You can get it mm-hmm. quite easily. It's mm. it's real sad. Yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. is sad that there was never an unbreakable released, as you say, and you know, or unbreakable wasn't used as the first single. But the other thing, which is a bit of a side note, mm-hmm. is that to me, it's a massive travesty that we've had enough didn't make it onto the album. I love, that let song. alone make it out as a single, because I feel that that could have been amazing live as well. Yeah, I I agree completely. Yeah, we're going to have a whole Invincible roundtable as well where we can talk about some of those unreleased tracks that could have made it on, but I'm with you for sure. It also kind of makes me sad to think that in that front row is Rodney Jerkins watching these concerts, and he'd worked with Michael in the studio for years at this point. And like you said, Charlie, You Rock My World is a great song, and this was his moment to see You Rock My World shine, and he didn't get that kind of... um, experience i guess like all of the other key producers that uh worked with michael jackson over the years so i kind of feel a bit sorry for him as well okay so the show's finished and and we know that um back in camp jackson things were not all roses people in the jackson family were very concerned about michael's health uh and well-being and what happened was they the family actually had a meeting at havenhurst very soon after 9-11, which we'll, we'll get to shortly. And uh, they had a meeting about Michael's dependency problems. Uh, they noted that he had intentionally been in a different hotel dressing room. He spent little time with the family uh, during preparations and rehearsal. People from Michael's camp were telling Jermaine that Michael wanted distance from his family. And Jermaine said in his book that that his family, really their job was not to be employed as yes men like some of the other people around him and that they needed to stand in and do something for Michael. And the result of that meeting at Havenhurst was planning an intervention. And so we know that an intervention for Michael was carried out some months later where Catherine, Jackie, Tito, Randy, Janet, Reby and Latoya all went to Neverland with a doctor to carry out the intervention. Even one of the brothers literally jumped over the security gate because they weren't being allowed in and they found Michael and had a confrontation with him about his state during the um, 30th anniversary concert. So we, we know that, you know, this triggered more family intervention and help that would continue on the way through to 2009. I guess the 30th anniversary concerts really, the legacy of them is that, yes, yes, they were very successful and and they, I think they, after the, the, the editing, pro- when it was released, I think it aired 13th of November, 2001, it was the highest rated non-charity musical special in TV history. 
and it cleared something like $20 million of profit for Michael and David Guest after the syndication of the shows around the world. So its legacy is twofold. It really was very, very successful and created a lot of new young fans like myself, but um, its legacy also is that it kind of foreshadows it, it, the same thing that happened in 2009 could have easily right. happened, I think, in, in 2001, mm-hmm. um, which is a sad thing to think about. And then as we know, just some hours after the September 10th concert, very sadly, um, the terrorist attack in, in New York City took place, which in which the, the Twin Towers, the trade, World Trade Center, was brought down. And uh, then you have a, another <laughs> kind of infamous story about Michael fleeing New York City to get out of there. Let's just cast our minds back to that, you know, to that. I mean, Vinay, you were there in, I'm assuming you were there, you would have still been in New York. You would have woken up in New York City after that second concert. Walk us through your experience. No, I actually was fortunate enough that I was living in Delaware at the time, which is a two and a half Greyhound bus ride away. Mm -hmm. So that second night, for that second concert, my cousin had came from Delaware and met me in New York, and we attended that concert together. And we kind of camped that outside thinking we would catch Michael leaving, and it never happened. So we end up actually getting on a train about 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I actually got home close to 5 in the morning, back to my home state. And um, I went to bed, and then my phone would just not stop ringing, like around 8-something And I was like, I'm not answering the phone because everybody knows that I just came back from San Michael. They know it's eight o'clock in the morning. They know I'm not up. So I just kept letting it ring, but it was getting, it was crazy. Like nobody calls me that many times in the morning. And so I finally answered the phone and it was my sister saying, did you make it back? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to go to sleep. And she was like, we're under attack. New York was just attacked. And I got up and turned on the TV and I just could not believe you know, we had been there that entire week. It was so many fun activities going on. It was like Michael parties. And just for that to be the end of such a fantastic week, being with Michael fans from all over the world, I mean, all over, hanging out on the red carpet at MTV, going to the fan events, going to the fan parties, all the, you know, stalking out and hoping to see Michael and looking for Michael and seeing the two shows and then for it to all end in such a tragic way, it was so hurtful. But I had friends that were stuck there for weeks because they grounded all the flights. People couldn't especially get back overseas, you know? So I had friends that were staying in hotels and sleeping on hotel lobbies and just really had no place to go for one to two weeks. It was horrible. Well, Vinay, it's it, it's great to hear that you managed to get out before anything bad happened. Uh, when it comes to nine eleven, I'm particularly interested in the personal side of, of things happening. Obviously, we all know the main events of what happened and the and the planes and the towers coming down, um, and obviously the devastation around that day. So the fact that you got home and away from it is just amazing, and I'm so happy that you did. Uh, you. And to Thank hear you. your phone blowing up, see my my experience. Obviously, I wasn't in the country at the time. I was living in the UK, but all this unfolded for us around lunchtime. So we knew something was up when we were at school. And my biggest memory from the day, from my own personal point of view, was looking up at the sky and seeing all the contrails of the aircraft that go out to the Americas doing big 180s in the sky and returning back to London or Northern Europe. But I've not really spoken to anyone who was on the ground 
in New York or Washington. And now that I've had the chance to visit both of those locations and see the scale of these events for myself, yeah, I just wanted to speak to you, to someone that was there or or experienced it or has firsthand experience of, of what happened. And the fact that you were in New York that night, I did wonder if you'd managed to stay or, or were staying in New York when it all unfolded. But the fact that you got out is great. Yeah, I literally, I was saved. It was a three-hour It was a three hour difference from the time that I got home to the time that the first plane hit. Like if we would have kept waited to catch the next train, we would have been stuck there. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You know, so we it's crazy. And Sean, if you don't mind my asking, what was your experience of that day? Well, I was a ninth grade English teacher. And so once we got word that the first plane had hit the World Trade Center, we had TVs in the room and we turned on the TVs and that's what we did for the rest of the day. Um, and so it's interesting to hear Renee's account of what happened with her, uh, because like I said earlier, I had I was very tempted to go to those shows and would have been stuck there as well. And so for me, though, it was a, it was a teachable moment as an educator for my students. Even my, my students today, they still talk about being in my classroom um, and what we did that day, trying to process that whole uh, those, those events uh, of that day. Just a quick question for Vanay, because I know that I've heard stories previously that in the aftermath of the attacks, Michael was able to track down some of the fans who were stuck there after the shows and did help them out by paying bills and stuff. So I just wondered whether any of your friends who were stuck in the city were the beneficiaries of Michael's help. I do think that my friend Beatrice from Spain was one of the people who uh, Michael provided some sort of bus for everybody to get out of the city. At least that's what the story I I think she said. And I believe she was one of the people that were on that bus. But I don't know that to be 100%. Like, I I don't want to quote her because I, I don't remember the story exactly. But I think she was one of the people who um, were able to get on the bus that Michael arranged for his fans to get out of the city. When I think back on that, sometimes I think about how Michael's career sort of became linked to what was going on with 9-11. I mean, it touched so many people's lives, but then, of course, he was meant to be promoting and releasing Invincible straight you know, straight after this. And, of course, Invincible did come out and, and all of that. I'm sure it's, you know, success was sort of impacted by... 9-11 to some degree, but then he, of course, arranged benefit concerts himself, the um, United We Stand concert in Washington, which included a performance of the song, What More Can I Give? It's interesting to think what the Invincible era could have been like had that not happened or whether it would have been very different at all. I don't know. Michael certainly wasn't in the best state of mind. I think definitely if if Sony had not sabotaged the um, What More Can I Give single, that Michael wanted to put out. It's a great song. What More Can I Give, I believe, started out as, um, it was originally written in the 90s, and I think it was called Heal LA yeah, or something correct. like that. Yeah. And Michael repurposed it. Well, it, it sounded like he was going to repurpose it in 99 for the MJ and Friends thing because the banners at the concert said, What More Can I Give on them? And then that didn't come to fruition. And then he wanted to repurpose it for 9-11. And Sony basically came up with some cockamamie story about, oh, we can't do it because Mark Schaffel worked in the studio and he used to be a porn producer, which is like, yes, yeah, so what? You know, I mean, what 
that's just such a chicken shit reason not to release it. That's so, so what, you know, it was clearly part of the ongoing war between Michael and Sony. The fact mm. that that got sabotaged, it's such a, a great song that had that been promoted properly with Sony's backing, I have no doubt that would have become an absolute global smash. It, it you know, it is a fantastic song and a great collection of artists. You know, it would have been huge if that had not been sabotaged. It would have been an astronomical success. Right. So for now, let's talk a little bit more about what we think could still come from these shows. I mean, David Guest has passed away. Who knows where the rights are for these shows now? Just hypothetically, if you were in charge of re-releasing the 30th anniversary concerts in whatever form you think that they would be best in, how would you do it? Well, I think it's important to document the shows as they happen. So for better or for worse, I think you need to release them, uh, both shows in, in, in their complete form. So that way p- fans can see, because um, right now we were looking back and saying, you know, how did those shows turn out? And so I think we need to be able to see those. But at the same time, I think you need to have an edited version uh, so that way we can see the best of those shows. So I, I guess in terms of, you know, what would I do with them? You just put them out there for the fans to see for better, for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally would have them, if we were going to re-release it, I'd have them in, having the songs in chronological order. Like, if, for example, you don't see the, the dangerous concert Bucharest tour starting with Man in the Mirror and Michael <laughs> Rocket packing out of the stadium and then followed by Jam. That would be you know? confusing. Yeah, wouldn't it? Uh, and we've got that in a way with, with, with the lineup that we've, we've got. And, and those solo performances, for better or for worse, if they're in a chronological order, it's going to take away some of the the nitpicking, if you like, as saying, oh, that's wrong. That's in a different place. Obviously, with, with time, hopefully, there'd be some sort of upscaling in terms of quality of the, the videos themselves, high definition. And I think be selective on which of the tribute acts mm-hmm. you actually yeah. put in that program. <laughs> I think a 90-minute program is, is good enough, but I don't want to go over an old line. But who wants to hear a rap in the middle of Heal the World? I mean, come on. <laughs> right. Especially when you've got Ray Charles that hasn't been aired before. So. Yeah, exactly right. I, I'm still not over that rap. I will get over it one day. But. I won't. I'll never get over it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't even just the fact that it was a rap. It was who who it was also because Rod Digger at the time, to me, wasn't popular enough to be there. So even if you were going to make the mistake of putting a rap on it, at least put a rapper that was – a little bit more well-known. It was a horrible idea to begin with, but at least mm. pick somebody that, I, I just don't think people were familiar with Rod Digger. I know her because I love Busta Rhymes and she's from that camp. But really, when you think about it, who really knew who she was, you know? She I just, still don't know who she is. Exactly. That's my point. So it's like, <laughs> I just think it was a bad idea. And as far as the future of them, I think it would be really cool if somehow they can be tied into Prince's Hill LA, maybe even released as a fundraiser for him. Something something that makes it, I don't know, that just ties it back to Michael's humanitarian efforts. Um, everything that his son is doing is so freaking fantastic. And oh, yeah. if he can somehow incorporate that, you know, of course, like you said, remaster it. Let's cut out Liza. Let's cut out Marla. Let's cut out the rap. You know, let's let's get rid of all the foolishness 
make it just absolutely phenomenal and release it and let the proceeds go to Hill LA, you know, because I mean, people love doing, people want it because it's Michael. And most of us have a bootleg copy anyway, you know, two or three different bootleg copies. But release it like I have a Motown 25 box set. That box set has a DVD of just rehearsals and then a DVD of shows. And I have no idea what the other two DVDs are. It's like four DVDs. Do something like that. Put the book in there that we got that night, you know, smaller version. Put some rehearsal footage on one DVD. Put the highlights, you know, from it. Make it a whole nice box set, you know, an anniversary box set of some sort. It almost needs to be in a, a documentary form. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, like a like just like like we're sitting here talking about it now. Uh, it, it, there needs to be. I mean, they, we we've seen some good documentaries from Spike Lee. Um, but so someone could come in, take this footage and really talk about, you know, everything that transpired uh, around this. And it doesn't have to always doesn't have to focus on the negative. But again, you know, it really just kind of capture that moment uh, and the fact that it is linked to 9-11 as well. Mm. Well, perhaps that if, if, if Taj's documentary is to, to be a, a whole overview of, you know, Michael's life and what this guy was really all about, that's potentially could be in there. I don't believe that there is any commercial or artistic value attached to these shows which would merit releasing them. I can't see a release of these shows being commercially successful in any way. I think they're only of interest to a very small proportion of Michael's existing fan base. And artistically... I think is best that they're not available much like the history tour. I think <laughs> it's actually detrimental to Michael's legacy to release that stuff because what you don't want to do is release into the marketplace, a wealth of material in which Michael is lip syncing and not performing to the best of his abilities because it, it, yeah. it is actually damaging to the legacy. So it gives ammunition to critics. You know, if this was to be released on DVD tomorrow, the critics would savage it and they would be justified in savaging it. They'd say, this is Michael Jackson on drugs, miming to a handful of his old hits. What's the point? Yeah, that would be a completely valid and true statement by those critics. So what would be the point? I think what happened around those concerts is interesting and it might be interesting to include some discussion of it in a book or in a documentary. But as far as actually releasing the concerts, I just think it's a complete no-no. I think it would actually be better to burn the footage than to release the footage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speak your mind. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he does. (laughs) That's what I love love about Charles Thompson. I'm a huge fan, huge fan. (laughs) Younger me would have said, put out a high definition version, edit it again. So it's the mainly the second night, have a select group of tributes at the start, much like the ones we were saying at the start were the best and leave out, you know, Aaron Carter. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that anymore. I disagree that it wouldn't be commercially viable because I think that there's a lot of those tribute artists in there that all together actually make a pretty decent concert. And many of them are still very popular today, like Beyonce and Usher 
And, you know, even like there'd be a lot of people interested, I think, in those, the classic artists like Luther Vandross and Dionne Warwick and Gloria Gaynor. And once you've got all those names together in one high definition musical release, I think actually quite a few people would want to buy it and have it in their collection. But for the reasons you were just saying as well, Charlie, I don't know if it's the best idea, especially with how Michael is in his own solo set. I think what I would want will never happen because the estate probably controls the rights to all of this stuff. And what I think I would want is a really honest documentary around the conception of the shows and how they turned out, including a lot of that rehearsal footage you were talking about earlier, Charlie, um, and interviews with people involved in it. A really good documentary with snippets of footage from the shows you know, to showcase some of the good stuff that was going on in there as well. I think that would be the smartest thing to do. And I think it would be pretty damn successful as well because you're watching the King of Pop in his last proper concert, really. You know, I don't know about the commercial viability of that. I still don't think it would happen because it would have to be really honest. And if there's one thing the estate is not, it's honest. There's an issue with the rehearsal footage. You know, is Michael is performing well, but he looks terrible. So... There's a trade-off involved there. It would involve releasing a bunch of footage of Michael with tape all over his face and stuff. So it's whilst it's interesting to have watched, again, I'm not convinced that there would be much justification in putting it out to the wider public. I think it would invite more criticism than it's worth. Yeah, I think, Charlie, you're right in that it would invite a hell of a lot of criticism. But then we've seen how tabloid-style media behave, and if there's something to sensationalise when it comes to Michael Jackson, then they'll take any opportunity. And I think there's enough of a backstory here that if the footage exists and if a behind-the-scenes of the build-up or the making of this show ever came out, there would be enough sensationalism around it that the hype would make it commercially viable, which is a negative. It's not really what you want. But from the fan point of view, you obviously get a look into the window of what was going on around that time. Yeah, I think I'm more interested in having the real history of it out. Like, um, the older I get as a Michael Jackson fan, the less I'm concerned with products coming out that only show him in a positive light because I think his legacy is pretty much, like, sealed. Like, he... Hmm. He's never going to be doubted as one of the greatest entertainers that ever lived. Like what he did in the 70s and 80s and through the 90s will never be questioned. He was, he was incredible. So I think like if there are honest documentaries about the real Michael Jackson, I, I, I see that as more valuable to the historical record than, you know, something else that's just going to promote him in, a, in another propaganda sort of fashion. I, and I agree with that. And I think it's, that's why it's important that, you know, we, we do get some sort of documentary on this, or if it would be my wish that we could get some sort of documentary of these shows and that weekend and everything that transpired around it, re- reuniting with his brothers, uh, 9-11 happening. There's a story to be told there. Yeah. And I think as fans, uh, I want to hear that story. Yeah. I'm thinking kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen that documentary, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, where he's putting that that concert together that he did in New York. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but like, it's just a mix of performance footage from the actual concert, but heaps of cuts back to him preparing the concerts and trying to get people involved and behind the scenes, him talking to people in rehearsals. And I think it could be a really great mix of that. Like the shows were, they had a really rocky road. And I think that's an interesting story in itself. 
But we'll see. I think it would take a really honest uh, estate to do that, and that's not something we we have. So. I think we'd be more likely to see something out of Taj than yeah. the estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our 30th anniversary roundtable. Congrats, guys. It happened. Hey. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Deal. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So I want to go around the table now and just, just give you guys a chance to talk about where people can find you online. Um, because I know, Vinay, I mean, you have dropped some nuggets of interesting stuff in our conversation about different times you had met Michael, and we obviously won't have time to dig into that now. We are going to have to get back together to have some of those stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So do you just want to give uh, listeners a bit of an idea where they can find you online if they want to interact with you? Sure. As a Michael collector, I do an item of the day every day on Instagram and Facebook. So I'm under my name, Renee Lewis O'Neill, on Facebook. And then you can also find me on Instagram, Renee MJJ, I believe is my name. Look, I had to account so long, I don't even know my own name. <laughs> um, it's MissVernay.MJJ. And I just pick a different item to highlight every day from my husband and, and my collection. And our YouTube channel is Vernay and Ryan, MJJ5 Fanatics on YouTube. And I have all of my stories on there, you know, going to Neverland, seeing Michael for the first time, being in the courtroom, working for his 45th birthday party and, and all of the. I have so many Michael stories on there and we highlight our collection on there. So please go check us out and subscribe. Vernay and Ryan, MJJ5 Fanatics on YouTube. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Carter. Twitter I only really use for discussing things to do with Michael Jackson. So that's at Charlie W. Carter. My personal account on Instagram is also at Charlie W. Carter. I do have a photography page as well on Instagram and Facebook, which does include a couple of aerial photos at Neverland in case you're interested. That's at Alpha Charlie Photos. I think that's that's pretty much it. I don't really do anything on Facebook, Michael Jackson related, other than promote the MJ cast. So. Cool. And Sean? I am on Twitter. My handle is S-A-S-H-A-C-K-E-L-F-O-R-D or S-A-Shackleford. I am also on Facebook. And if you are looking for me on Facebook, just look for my cover photo. I'm in front of 2300 Jackson Street with my family, and we all have on Jackson's T-shirts. Nice. And and I'm also uh, the administrator for the, the Jackson's Music Club on Facebook and Thank God for the Jacksons, those two groups that are dedicated to the Jackson family. Very cool. And Mr. Thompson, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, people know where I am on Twitter. I'm at, at C.E. Thompson, but that's only for kind people. So <laughs> if you're upset with anything that I've said on this show, then my Twitter account is um, at the MJ cast. <laughs> Direct your complaints to them. <laughs> Poor Elise. Let me just say this. I've interacted with you, Charlie, on uh, on uh, Twitter, and I never want to get in your crosshair. So I want to make sure I stay on your good side. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you cut people up, and I'm like, okay, I want to be Charles Thompson's friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie, you've only had kind things to say about Sean. You, gave me a, you told me a story once about when you listened to his episode uh, episode on a train ride i did yeah i was actually on my way to see the jacksons um back in august when they did their show the day before michael's birthday in um england their first show back since the pandemic began 
And um, I listened to the new MJ cast on my way on the train, and it was Sean's episode talking all about the Jacksons and how great their albums were, which I agree with completely, and how great their tours were. And it was such a brilliant episode. You know, it made me really emotional. And it was particularly great to listen to it on my way to see them. It was just a fantastic listen. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I That's high honor coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd agree with it as well, Sean. Your episode was one of my favorite ones to listen to and to and to edit. So I definitely recommend that people go and, and have a listen. Thank yeah. you, guys. I appreciate it. I had a f- lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Someone actually texted me the other day to say they were listening to that episode and how brilliant it was, but I can't remember who it was. I can't remember who messaged me. Isn't that weird when that happens? Like, it's I'll just be sitting at home and somebody will email in from like a random country in the Middle East. Or I got an email from some guy in India yesterday who was like getting real passionate about something we said in an episode like two years ago. And he was, <laughs> <laughs> and, he was and I'm like, I can't even remember to say that. But like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Look, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I feel really lucky to have been here with all of you talking about the concerts that made me a fan. And yes, they they weren't perfect, but they had their uh, desired impact on so many million fans around the world, including me, who instantly became a fan for the rest of my life. I often, you know, maybe a couple of times a year, go back and watch those shows on YouTube and and always just reminiscent of, of uh, those days watching it for the first time. So thank you for being here to talk all about it. Of course, listeners, if you want to subscribe to the MJ cast, we really encourage you to. Um, so we are a podcast predominantly. We are on YouTube as well, but you can find us on all kind of podcast networks. We are on, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We are on Overcast. We're on Google Podcasts everywhere. Just search for the MJ cast and subscribe. We're on all kinds of social media platforms. We're on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. Just search for the MJ cast. We've still got a few exciting episodes coming out this season. I'm very excited to be doing the Invincible Roundtable, which is going to be similar to this episode, but going through the songs on that album and and the whole Invincible era. And uh, that'll be a very interesting chat that we'll be having soon. So thank you very much for everybody tuning in to listen to this episode of the MJ Cast. We can't wait to put out another one soon. Keep Michael in.